I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as witches, weirdos, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. I almost forgot which films we were covering today. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> We're recording this one on April the 12th, 2021, and it should be out on Friday the 16th, assuming it's on time, which I've had a pretty good track record recently. Yeah, yeah. Getting better. Can it get better if they're always on time? I mean, come on. One day they'll be early. (laughs) I think we did that on the last one. (laughs) Did we? It was a day early. Oh, wow. Look at us go. But I guess before we dive into our witch films, we should uh, go over the news and whatnot, so couple of things to note. This one's not so much horror direct related, but Danielle Harris will be reprising a Roseanne role on the Connors. Huh? So the Connors isn't horror, but Danielle Harris definitely is. So worth the mention. Yeah. Cleve Hall, makeup special effects artist. He did, let's see, Ghoulies, Reanimator, Troll, bunch of other shit. And he also starred on that sci-fi show, The Monster Man. He passed away on the 31st. He was 61 years old. Oh, damn. Gianetto De Rossi, makeup effects artist, he did like Dune and Lucio Fulci Zombie in High Tension. He passed away today, I believe it was. He was 79. Holy shit. Right before we started recording, I saw a notice that Enzo Schiotti, I hope I didn't butcher his name, he passed away today and he made every famous VHS horror movie and shitty action movie cover you can imagine. Like he drew the posters. Oh, damn. Like Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, no Blood Sport, like any of those like drawn but realistic styled ones, those were him. Wow. So that guy made Friday Nights awesome at the Blockbuster. <laughs> There's a couple other things that was neat. Godzilla vs. Kong came out in theaters and it had a $32 million domestic opening. And as of writing this episode, has already made almost $358 million. So I guess the theaters are making a comeback. Holy shit. That many people saw that movie? <laughs> I watched it open at night at home on HBO Max, but that's the thing. <laughs> this just goes to counter that argument that the theaters are afraid that like HBO Max releasing all the Warner Brother movies on release day and Disney Plus doing it's going to kill the theaters. Because yeah. apparently not, because Godzilla vs. Kong, it's a horror movie, technically. I mean, like, that's good opening weekend. That's good overall numbers so far. Yeah. Right? In the middle of a pandemic, so you know, like, seating is halved and people are scared to go out. And you could watch it on HBO Max, same day. So people that want to go to the theater are going to go. The people that were going to skip your movie anyways are going to watch it on TV. Yep. This just goes to show that. So we'll have to see what films continue to do as more people get vaccinated or refuse to get vaccinated and get COVID and get antibodies. So... (laughs) I'm going to stick with the third category of I think I've had COVID and I'm just going to go for it. I got so sick off of my second COVID shot and I had to miss work for like two days. I've never felt that bad in my life. But they say if you get sick off the shot, you probably had COVID. Uh, Anyway, speaking of theaters, The Forever Purge, which is the last film in the Purge franchise, has a release date of Fourth of July weekend now. Okay. It was supposed to come out last year. It got moved. So, oh, okay. See, I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they're ending it, supposedly. Yeah, yeah. Then 10 years later, yeah, we'll wait and see. 
And do you remember when I mentioned the uh, 2021 Fangoria Chainsaw Awards categories? I think we covered it on an episode and we're like, oh, we'll go over the results in the end on another episode. And I never saw the results posted. And, and I now know why, because Fangoria and Shudder have teamed up and they're going to stream the Chainsaw Awards live on April the 18th at uh, 8 Eastern time. Holy shit. And I still won't have internet by then, so I won't be able to watch. <laughs> That sucks. For the record, Josh hasn't had internet in a week, and he's recording from his office at work. Yep, so you may hear stereos from this suite over here, screaming from this suite over here, but if we're real lucky, we'll get gunshots. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) That's all I have for news. Do you have anything you want to add? Uh, AT&T sucks. There we go. But uh, You can guess who Josh has internet with. But Starlink did just put up 16 more satellites, so my shit needs to hurry up and ship. <laughs> as far as announcements go, I don't have any, so I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> I feel like we're always announcing something, like it's going to be delayed or skipping a week or changing something in the format. Right now, it's just nothing, so I'll take it. Yeah, chugging along. As far as updates and corrections go, I made some notes of things that I said I'd check on. New Trier High School was the school that John Hughes' friend's child attended that had the breakfast club for detention. Oh, okay, okay. The Judd Nelson movies that I couldn't remember the name of where he was the serial killer author in a cabin was called Cabin by the Lake and Return to the Cabin by the Lake. All right. The Bowie quote at the beginning of the movie, you asked me if it was from a song, and I said I wasn't sure. Yeah. And from all research, it wasn't a song. It was just a Bowie quote that Ali Sheedy told John about, and she didn't know he was going to put it in the movie until she saw the movie, and it was in the opening shot. That's awesome. Yeah. I also have a note here that says pancreas and a question mark, so I'm assuming <laughs> that's something from your notes. In a long line of me mentioning something and saying, we'll come back to that, and then not coming back to it. There was a deleted or extended scene in the restaurant where I don't believe it said pancreas on the menu, but they think it says pancreas on the menu. And that's why you get the one shot of Cameron sitting at the table awkwardly chewing. And then later on in the movie when they're in the taxi uh, next to dad and uh, Cameron saying, you know, I didn't see anything, anything good today. And and Ferris is like, come on, man, you ate pancreas. That's why that joke's (laughs) in there. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. And I finished up Eli Roth's History of Horror Season 2. And, well, at least I think I finished it. <laughs> but the last episode I could see on Shudder was called The Nine or something like that. It was nine, like, movies that didn't fit into another category. And I thought that was a really cool idea he had to do with that. Okay. And, of course, he covered Midsummer, or, as I learned from watching that, Midsomar. <laughs> so that's why Ari Aster says it that way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we said the movie wrong several times in the episode. So I put that as a correction from a really old episode, but it was like I had an uh, epiphany when when I saw that. And I also think we saw it because we didn't mention how much it was like The Wicker Man. Well, that's because our brains have been burdened with that shitty remake. So we just don't bring it up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you did say that, fuck it, I forgot about it. As far as what we watched, my list have been pretty good recently, but um, Monster Hunter Rise came out on the Nintendo Switch like a couple of days before our, our new episode went live. And uh, 
I've already clocked 60-something hours on that bad boy. Oh, damn. So I'm enjoying that. So it ate into my movie time, but looking at this list, I have managed to squeeze some shit in. Jesus. <laughs> so like I said earlier, I watched Godzilla versus Kong open a night on HBO Max. The whole family sat down and watched it and ate popcorn and shit. And the kids liked it. My son really liked it and immediately asked for a Godzilla and Kong action figure set so he could make them fight. Nice. And I realized it was like part three of a trilogy, starting with the Godzilla 2014 movie starring Brian Cranston and then going into Godzilla King of the Monsters. So the next day we went back and watched part one, which was kind of slow for my kids. Part two which they liked better because it was Godzilla fighting a bunch of shit, and then we had watched three first, so that was kind of fun to watch it. But Godzilla versus Kong was actually really fun. Okay. I watched Big Trouble in Little China with my kids to see how they react. Nice. My daughter kind of went in and out of it. I'm pretty sure my son liked it, but he was playing games on his tablet and then would watch like the Kung Fu fights, but he didn't complain. So that was a plus. Okay. Movie's just as good as I remember it being. I mean, I've seen <laughs> it like 50 times. So you'd hope, you'd hope that you remembered it right, but... Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It's not horror, but it's been kind of awesome on Disney Plus. I'm really loving these TV shows with like movie budgets on them. <laughs> so that's kind of neat. I watched The Reckoning. Oh, you did? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything was there, man. Everything was there for it to be awesome, and it just wasn't. It's kind of interesting because, you know, in a previous episode, I was talking about watching The Dark and the Wicked and how it was like a good movie. But it was in the same wheelhouse as Hereditary, and it kind of made it not as cool to me because it wasn't Hereditary, right? But it was kind of the same thing. Yeah. The Reckoning was like The Witch, but not good. (laughs) But it had everything. Like I said, like the opening scene sold me on the movie. I was like, this is going to be great. Oh, yeah. And then it wasn't. (laughs) I don't know. It was just really weird. Like there was a scene with the devil. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah, And the injuries that one of the main characters sustains and then manages to go sword fight an entire castle off. Oh, no, fuck it. I'll say it. I was so stoked that they actually used the pair of anguish. But yeah, her walking, let alone her being alive (laughs) after the amount of blood loss. And then, like you said, going on to sword fight. Absolutely ridiculous. But it looked cool. (laughs) It was weird because it fit like a historically accurate kind of vibe in one way. Oh, yeah. Like they wanted to actually show the darkness of the Salem witch trials and then went full on Joss Whedon heroin movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like it couldn't decide if it wanted to be the witch or pride and prejudice and zombies. Yeah. It couldn't decide if it wanted to be grounded or fantastical. Right. And it tried to do both. Yep. Still a fun watch. Right, right. With it being a Neil Marshall flick, I was hoping I was going to love it. And what you were saying about it not being able to decide if it wanted to be realistic or fantastical, it actually could have done either one of them perfect, I think. Yeah, if it had just stayed in its lane. And it really kind of sucks because other than Dog Soldiers and The Descent, his movies have not been great. Yeah, but you just named two that are so good. (laughs) Oh, I know, I know, I know. But everything else came after those two. And you just kind of want it... To hit that again, right? So it's kind of like Kevin Smith. (laughs) (laughs) I think Neil Marshall has another movie coming out soon. I'll have to check that, but let's hope. Speaking of Joss Whedon, I watched The Nevers on HBO last night. It premiered. uh, So my wife and I watched it. It was really good. I liked it. It was different. I know nothing about this. It's a Joss Whedon created show. He wrote and directed the first episode. It's like Victorian era and something happened. I don't want to ruin it. 
and certain people were touched or blessed, but they use the term touched. Some people use the term cursed, but they were all given abilities, and it's primarily women. Okay, so it's Joss Whedon, it's Victorian, and people get powers. Yes. Okay, the wife is going to be all over this. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Creep Show Season 2 started, and I haven't seen Episode 2 yet, but Episode 1 was a lot of fun because the second show... I'm just going to go ahead and, and say what happens on it without spoilers per se. Okay. It's like PBS and Bob Ross is on their painting and he's a nom vet. <laughs> and Ted Raimi goes on the equivalent of the antique road show <laughs> as himself with the Necronomicon to get it valued. <laughs> and the host of the show reads the Necronomicon out loud and Ted Raimi turns into a deadite. And starts attacking everyone in the studio, turning them into deadites. Oh, my God. And Bob Ross has to go whoop their ass. <laughs> oh, I got to see that. I'm staying late at work. <laughs> <laughs> and this was the second story. The first story is really good, too. It was about a kid in a bad family situation that's obsessed with horror movies. And him and his mom would watch them for a release and he collects posters and toys and he basically can start controlling people around him using his horror figures to oh, get okay. payback on like bullies and, and his family situation. So I was kind of long winded there. I saw more than I, I thought going into this, but uh, I got to see a little bit on top of playing video games. What have you watched? Well, um, back when we had internet, we watched the uh, documentary, <laughs> the last blockbuster and I like documentaries and yeah, that one was really fun just to see how the last few folded and how the one left in Oregon is still there and immediately went online and ordered a bunch of shit from them um, just to get it while we can. And so that was neat. We had started watching Resident Alien. It's got what's his nuts from Firefly <laughs> and Serenity. Wash, that's his name. <laughs> and uh, it started off like. Cause, cause dude's an alien pretending to be a human and he's really bad at yeah. it and it's almost too much. But like after about four episodes, it's like, all right, fuck it. I, I'm in, I'm in for the long haul now. So, uh, I'm looking forward to continuing watching that. But then after that and no internet, it, we started bust out the DVD collection and, uh, this past weekend, if things couldn't get any more depressing, I decided to make the wife finally watch 1984. And, uh, <laughs> I, I agree with the meme. That was not meant to be an instruction manual. <laughs> I do want to say, though, I'm okay that you couldn't remember Alan Tudyuk's name, but you said dude from Serenity and Firefly and not Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah, yeah, he was in that, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, geez. We're such nerds. I kept my nerd card, but I'm losing my horror card. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it kind of sucks, though, because we don't have a full-on nerd podcast. We just kind of do the horror thing here. So I know, right? <laughs> I'm going to have to get you to reapply for that license. What? Well, fuck that. Who do I pay? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you guys are here to listen to us talk about witch films. Witch films? Exactly. It's never going to get old. It's not. I annoy my children all the time because they got hooked on Scooby-Doo. So I, I bought like 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. You remember that one? Yeah. I think I mentioned it on the podcast and I watched it with my son. 
And one of the episodes, you know, the two goofy ghosts that are always trying to stop them. There's a, there's a witch episode and they're like, which, which is which? Yeah. <laughs> and I say it to my kids all the time. And they're like, daddy, stop it. Stop <laughs> saying it. So, uh, yeah, I love that joke. That's great. But something I want to start doing on categories, if we can, is do a little brief history of films of the uh, category or subgenre. Okay. And hopefully I do a more detailed job next time because I had this idea right before we started recording. But here we go. Which films pretty much started in the 1930s? And it was by Disney. It was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and The Wizard of Oz. Hey. Those were your first witches on TV. They showed up in other things, but some more popular eras. You had like a little window in the 50s to the 70s where you had Bell Book and Candle in 58. Sleeping Beauty came out in 59. And then Bewitched, which was really based off of Bell Book and Candle a lot, ran from 1964 to 1972. And if you think about it, like these are kind of goofy witches, right? Yeah. Like they're not really scary. Other Wizard of Oz, I'm sure she was terrifying when that movie came out. Yeah, for for the time, definitely. You know, when you're watching Bewitched, it's, it's humor at this point. It's a comedy show. But there was a resurgence again in the 90s with The Craft, Charmed, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, yep. which, God, it's so hard to do this and not say witch. <laughs> but that Sabrina was a comedy show. It was like a sitcom. It wasn't oh, yeah. scary again. Charmed, while being a great show that I watched every episode of, could have been a Joss Whedon show, basically. And it was like three superheroes fighting supervillains, if you think about it. I mean, they're stopping demons and whatnot, right? But it was like kind of that vibe. And then The Craft, which is arguably one of the most famous witch films, right? Oh, yeah. Other than The Witch, I guess you would say. <laughs> and that one, you know, that one leaned a little bit more on horror. And then in more recent times, we had, like I said, The Witch came out, right? You had American Horror Story Coven. Yeah. Really kind of made witches cool again. And then Chilling Adventures of Sabrina came out on Netflix, which walked that line of humor and horror a bit, but actually it walked the line pretty well. Mostly. That show declined for me, but yeah, it was it was good out the gate. It wasn't without problems, but even when it was doing goofy stuff like beating Satan with cheerleading, you still had like gore in it and really dark themes happening. And I felt like it it followed that line pretty well regardless how you feel about plot choices. Yeah. Right. And witch films always like to go back and reference the Salem witch trials for better or worse. I mean, it was a terrible time in American history, right? Oh, yeah. And a lot of innocent women were tortured and or murdered. And in some ways it's kind of cheap to go back to it. But in other ways, I, I feel like if it's done right, you you can use that piece of uh, history to make art imitate life, right? Oh, yeah. Which leads me to our first film, which is 2016's The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which hilariously to me, I watched with my buddy David one night, and neither one of us had any clue that it was a witch film. See, that's so great because the, the first time I saw it, I knew nothing about it at all. So such a great movie to go into blind. And uh, I'm glad we both did. I didn't go into it blind. We actually watched a trailer first and it looked really good, but you thought it was going to be like a uh, demon possession movie or something, right? Okay. It, it really didn't lean on witchcraft. And when you watch it, I mean, it's a witch film. Like it's a witchcraft film. And it's really funny that I picked this movie because I've been wanting to do 
a witch episode since we started the first season. This was actually one of the first categories I wrote down. And the whole time I was saying, I'm going to cover the warlock starring Julian Sands. I love that fucking movie. <laughs> and I still plan on doing it one day. But when I started thinking about what movie I wanted to cover, this is the first one that jumped in every time. And I think it's because it's a unique tale and it's going to be kind of fun to go into. But it was directed by Andre Overdahl, who did Troll Hunter and Scary Stories Tell in the Dark and Mortal. Yep. Like you said a few episodes ago. And it was written by Ian Goldberg and Richard Nang. And Ian had written the Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles, lots of episodes, Once Upon a Time, shit ton of episodes, Dead of Summer, Fear the Walking Dead, and Eli. Okay. And I'm assuming him and Richard are friends because Richard's writing credits were Fear the Walking Dead and Eli. Ah. So they made two of those together, but... I mean, Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles is a very underrated show that anyone who saw it loved it, but not many people saw it, right? I'm one of those people that not saw it. (laughs) (laughs) And Once Upon a Time was an interesting take on people living in a real town and realizing that they're the storybook fairy tale Disney characters, basically. And it was kind of interesting. I never saw Dead of Summer, but I know somebody at work that liked it. So the cast, we have Brian Cox as Tommy. Yeah. Jesus, where do we start with him, man? He's got 200 and something acting credits. I know, right? I just notated a few that I thought were relevant to the podcast, but he goes way beyond this. But he was Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. Yeah. So he's the original Hannibal Lecter. Super Troopers. Goddamn right. <laughs> Say shenanigans one more time and I'll pistol whip you. <laughs> Love that line. He was in The Ring. He was ah. in Wes Craven's Red Eye. He was in Trick or Treat. Yeah. Right. And and so many other films and just a great actor. And you love his presence and his energy and anything he's in. Like he can be an asshole. He can be a bad guy. He can be like the nice grandpa. He plays it all and he plays it well. Yeah. Dude's got a presence. His son, Austin, is played by Emil Hirsch, which I immediately think a girl next door every time I see that guy. I haven't seen that. But it's a funny movie. And then he was Speed Racer in Speed Racer. Made by the Wachowskis. No shit. I'll leave that there. He's a great actor, but that movie was not good. I loved Speed Racer growing up. It just didn't need to be a movie. No. Wrong <laughs> wrong source material to try to Hollywoodize. He was in Lords of Dogtown. I haven't seen that yet, but I heard it's really good, and he was good in it. But it's that skateboard flick that came out a few years ago. Oh, okay. And I thought this is really funny. He's, he's got a lot of acting credits. I'm not saying most of them because he's done more serious work and not necessarily genre flicks, but there was a TV show. I've probably made you watch some of the episodes because I have an old DVD box set of it, but it was called Kindred the Embraced. It was the yeah. TV show based off of the Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah, yeah. So he's in one of the, his first acting credit was on an episode of that. He was the sick kid in the hospital. Do you remember when the Nosferatu vampire wants to turn the sick kid because he feels bad for him? Yeah. He's dying like cancer. It was him. No shit. <laughs> I didn't know that until I was looking out to see, you know, what else he was in besides Girl Next Door and Speed Racer, because that's always what jumps out to me immediately. <laughs> we have Ophelia Lovabond, who plays Emma, and she's done a metric shit ton of TV. But I would say most recently she was famous for being the detective on the show Elementary. Okay. And she has a small role in Guardians of the Galaxy. It, it really sucks, because anytime you see, like, um, a review of this film, they always say, you know, of Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm like, come on, she has a small part. Like she was <laughs> like a big character. 
On movie trailers and movie reviews and discussions, they always like to cite movies and not shows. But I mean, Elementary was a big show and out recently. You know, you could have just cited that. It kind of sucks. Yeah. And an interesting cast member we have is Olwen Kelly, who plays Jane Doe, which had to be a very unique acting job. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. And I saw her first film was called Darkness on the Edge of Town, and she starred in it. So I thought it was interesting. She was the star of the first film she was in, but she really hadn't been in a whole lot. And the only other character I feel like that has a name to be addressed enough is Sheriff Burke, played by Michael McElhatton. And he's done a shit ton of TV. Most recently, he was famous for being on Game of Thrones, and he was on The Alienist, which I haven't seen yet, but I kind of want to. Oh, okay. Yeah, the wife's watching that right now. Or was. <laughs> Let me know what she thinks of it, because I want to check it out. But a little brief history on the movie before I dive into it. Andre saw The Conjuring and thought James Wan made an amazing horror film. And he was like, I got to make a horror movie. <laughs> and he went to his agent and he said, start looking for a script for me. No because shit. Because I got to do this. And he landed on this one in about a month. Like it landed on his lap. I don't know how many scripts he went through, but this is the one that he saw. And he's like, this is unique. I could put my mark on it think it's kind of funny because there's a lot of similarities between this movie and The Conjuring. Yeah. I, I say a lot of similarities. I guess it's it's really just one, but it's a very major <laughs> plot point for both films. But he had to find somebody to play Jane Doe, and he found Olwen Kelly, who apparently was like a master in yoga, they say. Like, she does yoga a lot, and she was able to utilize that because a lot of people think there was a dummy used in this movie. There's an actual live woman laying on the table as a corpse the entire time. No shit. Like when they have to do surgery and stuff, they have prosthetics on her. Like maybe the rib splitter scene, <laughs> like they had a dummy for a second, but she is laying there the whole time, which had to be super fucking uncomfortable. Yeah. Like physically and mentally, like to have all those people in the room while you're laying there, just butt ass naked. But she's also laid on like a steel, like gurney or whatever you call it, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's on the damn slab to be cut open and being told, hey, hey, we can see you breathing. Stop it. <laughs> Apparently, she utilized yoga to just not look like she was breathing for lengthy amounts of time. Uh-huh. I think she's a witch. I never saw her breathe or blink. She did <laughs> a fantastic job. I can't tell you how many things I've seen. I mean triple a films with somebody supposed to be dead and you see their eye twitch a little bit right yeah. like she just lays there like it's fantastic some people think it's bullshit that it wasn't a dummy well see and that's the thing when you when you see the credits and it's like no she's she's fucking credited in the film not her likeness her <laughs> and they could have used the dummy i'm sure but he just wanted it to be real and look real and feel real which having a real person obviously helped with that but it also affected the actors in a way right like because they're acting with a real person and not a dummy. Yeah. So that added to their performance as well. And supposedly she had to kind of like rein in and, and help keep everyone comfortable. Because, I mean, that has to be fucking awkward. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> For everybody, you would think she was the one that would be primarily uncomfortable. But I guess like Brian Cox and stuff, you know, it was odd to them as well. Right. So she, she helped with that. Something I thought was interesting is the song Open Up Your Heart and Let the Sunshine In. Yeah. That you hear a lot in this movie. I always hear the Screech and Weasel version in my head. Exactly. But the version that we get in this movie is performed by the Cowboy Church Sunday School. But what's interesting is they used the original 45 record and played it at 33 and a third speed. Ah. Uh. Makes it creepier, right? <laughs> and the last couple of things to note, Martin Sheen was originally supposed to be Tommy. And he couldn't do it because something else came up. I'm assuming it 
is Frankie and Grace. My wife loves that show, but it's on Netflix, and he's a, a main character on that. That seems like it lines up time-wise. Okay. Brian Cox is fucking fantastic in this movie, and I wouldn't want anyone else in here, but Martin Sheen could have done it. Yeah, but I'd still rather have Cox. <laughs> I, I really like seeing him in movies, so I, I'm glad we have Brian Cox. But there were scenes, as I watched the movie like the second or third time through, I tried to picture Martin Sheen doing it. Yeah. Even the drinking the coffee. Oh, she can look at a body. Like I, I could see Martin Sheen making those faces. True. I think he could have done it. The only reason why I brought this up is a lot of times when we read one of these, like blah, 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 I was supposed to play. We're like, no, there's no fucking way they could have done it. This is like the one time where I'm like, yeah, they could have done it. <laughs> this is like a badge of honor for horror films and, and horror novels and podcasts and whatnot. But Stephen King said this movie freaked him the fuck out. Nice. And he really liked it. And he compared it to uh, like old Cronenberg films and stuff like that, like an alien. Yeah. Like he said, it's like on that level. And uh, it really is. It is a creepy movie and it is original with a very simple setting. But if Stephen King says your movie freaked him out, he did a good fucking job. Exactly. And from what I could find, it was made with a $6 million budget, which I'm actually surprised. That seems like a lot to me. Huh? based off the setting they're in and the limited cast. There's not a whole lot of people in there. Like, I don't know how movie budgets work nowadays, but when you look at a James Wan movie and then I see that this costs $6 million, <laughs> kind of blows mine a little bit, right? Like when you think about what James Wan does for $3 million. <laughs> oh, Either way, it's a great film. I'm going to try to go quick through the summary, which is probably really funny to everybody because I don't cover anything quickly. <laughs> But depending on how I go through this movie, I don't know if I want to say my thoughts on stuff as I go or at the end. I think I'm going to go with at the end, and it's going to end up being like the red yarn at the end of the Paranormal Activity <laughs> series I'm trying to connect. Or maybe I'll do it in pieces. I don't know. But there's a lot of thinking involved with this movie, and I want to cover that. So I, I would like to leave a good bit of room for that. Okay. So wish me luck. Onward. We open up at a crime scene of an apparent murder-suicide, and we see Sheriff Burke and Lieutenant Wade are looking at the bodies of a couple that they believe were murdered by the contractor who was also dead in the home. They say there's not any signs of damage on the outside of the house, doesn't look like a break-in, but it does appear like they were trying to break their way out the entire time. While investigating the scene, they're called down to the basement where they find the perfectly preserved body of a woman half-buried in the dirt, and they have no clue who the woman is. Who's she? Well, for now, she's a Jane Doe. Yeah, already really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, we cut to the Tilden Morgan crematorium, where we see the camera pan from the exterior of the home into the home, and it goes down the hall, and we can see three generations of family members owning this mortuary. And we finally go down into the basement, I'm going to call it, of the morgue, and see where the bodies go. We can see the crematorium. And there's like a single elevator to get down there, right? Yeah, that's got to be a fire hazard. Exactly. Well, there's actually a second exit. We'll get to that, though. And it would be like a staircase exit, if you think about it, directly out of the house. Even better than running into the burning living room. <laughs> True. But one thing I note is the house seems really old, and it's kind of dingy, and it makes it feel creepy by seeing it, right? Like, you naturally, when you see old and dingy things, it's creepier, right? Yeah. By the way, this is the setting for the entire fucking film, so <laughs> buckle up. We see Tommy and Austin, our father and son duo, performing autopsies on some bodies casually while rocking out some tunes on the radio, and Tommy starts quizzing his son on the cause of death on the bodies and walking him through his process, right? Yeah. Because 
his son had an incorrect conclusion on one of the bodies and he just trying to teach him lessons because this is a generational family ran Morgan crematorium. He's got to take over someday. Right. And the, the main thing to get here is that the dad says that they're there to figure out the cause of death. Nothing more. It's other people's jobs to figure out the why. And his son kind of sticks on the why a little bit. So you can already see he's deviating from his father's process a bit. Yeah. But even though Austin got the cause of death wrong on this particular case, his father lets him know that he did a good job and leaves him with some words of wisdom. Everybody has a secret. Some just hide them better than others. Sometimes it's on the inside of your skin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Austin sticks on the fact that the man had died alone. And he's really trying to push that on his dad until he gets a text from his girlfriend, Emma, and he lets his father know that he has a date that night at the movies with her and he's going to head out, right? Yep. And Tommy decides to reflect on the last time he went to the movies and he remembered seeing the notebook with Austin's mom, right? And after saying this, Tommy looks a little saddened and he walks out a, um, I guess I'm gonna call it a shutter door, but like the basement doors, you know, that, that open up yeah. like a, the barn doors. Cellar door. Yeah, it's a cellar door. Thank you very much. So he goes up the cellar door to have a smoke and reflect on what he just said, right? And he leaves Austin to clean up. And back in the morgue, we can see Austin is spooked by an odd sound in the air vent until the family cat Stanley jumps out with a dead rat. Not a jump scare, just exposition at this point, right? Yes. Good cat. (laughs) Austin starts to look for his father until he's startled from behind by Emma scaring him not also not really a jump scare but jump scared the shit out of him yeah and she says she came down the elevator because they accidentally left the key in so now we know this elevator has to have a key to operate right i guess the family lives upstairs the business is downstairs keep it separate right makes sense you don't want like your little cousin to wander down here right (laughs) traumatizing but Austin lets Emma know that he wanted to meet her outside because he didn't want her to come down here and get spooked out and she doesn't think it's fair that he gets to see her at work at the, I think it's a bookstore or a library. It's one of the two. <laughs> and she lets him know she just really wants to see a corpse, right? And Austin says that his father would object until his dad pops up in the background to disagree with the son. Try me. So, what'll it be? Emma picks a drawer to look at a body, and Austin opens the drawer next to that one. And she busts him out for that and says she wants to see the other drawer, even though he says a dead body's a dead body. And he begrudgingly swaps over to the other drawer where this victim had died of a gunshot wound to the head, or at least has a a severe gunshot wound to the head. Who knows? Calls to death, right? It's not our job to figure that out. (laughs) And he was trying to spare from seeing a grizzly corpse. He was just going to show her old woman died of natural causes instead of someone with their head blown off, right? Yeah. And she's more interested in the bell tied to the foot, which I always knew this from reading old, like, ghost story books. But I'm glad they put it in the movie. Tommy explains that it was hard for a coroner to tell the difference between a comatose patient and a corpse back in the day. And they would have to tie a bell to their feet so that if they heard a bell jingling in one of the drawers, they know the person wasn't dead yet. Right. (laughs) And that is a true story. As fucked up as it sounds. That is really what they used to do. Yep. And she wants to know why he still does this. And he says he's he's old school, basically, right? Like, I think he says a bit of a traditionalist, but yeah. he likes to do things the old school way. And I could see if I was in his position, I would do the bells, but that would be for my own safety. Yeah, damn right. But she wants to know why the victim died this way. 
And Tommy lets her know that she sounds just like her boyfriend, Austin, and that they're just there for the cause of death. The cops and the shrinks can figure out the why, right? Like that's his thing. He's already said it twice in the movie. We're not even that far in. She slowly reaches for the blanket over the head wound because she wants to check it out. And right when she's about to grab it, the bell starts ringing and she jumps and gets scared. And Tommy's standing back there laughing because pops reached in and ring the bell when she (laughs) reached for the blanket. He saved her from seeing the grizzly headshot wound and had a good time with it. Exactly. And it's really funny because they're like leaving the morgue and he's like, oh, it's so funny. You should have seen your face. And she's like, you think it's going to be funny when you're not getting laid tonight? (laughs) 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 But, you know, it was was, was a pretty good joke in all honesty. Yeah. But as Emma and Austin try to leave for the movies, they're greeted by Sheriff Burt coming down the elevator with a corpse on a gurney, right? And Tommy just yells, go have fun. Have a good night. I got this. And on the way out, Austin is explaining to Emma that the sheriff wouldn't have came that late unless it was something really important. He should stay and help his dad. Right. And he says he doesn't need to blow her off. And she's like, oh, that's that's great. You can just blow me off instead. Right. (laughs) And you get the feeling this has happened before. And he said, I just really don't think I should leave him alone right now. And she says, you know, it's been two years. Come on. Have you really not told him that you're leaving yet? So a couple of bits of information we figured out at this point. Pops got upset talking about the mom earlier, and she's saying it's been two years. So we know mom's gone, right? Yep. And we also can confirm that Austin isn't happy with his station in life, and he wants to move on and do something else. Because he's gone to school. He's a medical examiner, right? Like, there's other things he could do, but he does not want to run the family morgue, right? And he's supposed to have told his dad, but he just has not had the heart yet because he'd be another person leaving his dad, which is why he said something about the, it was sad the guy died alone. Right, because he doesn't want to leave his dad alone. You can tell it's like really burdening him on living his life versus taking care of his dad. Exactly. But in the end, he decides, I'm helping my pops. We can catch a midnight movie. Come pick me up at 11, right? And we see her walk out to her car, which we've seen in an exterior shot a couple of times, and drive away. But downstairs, we can see that Tommy's trying to pump the sheriff for some information. And the sheriff lets him know his theory that he thinks the worker in the home that was found dead had killed a girl and he was trying to dispose of the body and he knew he could hide it in the basement there where he was doing work. Right. And the family came home and caught him and he had to kill him and he committed suicide. And that's his running theory, right? Yeah. Logical conclusion. <laughs> and Austin chimes in cause he's now popped up in the morgue about not getting access to the crime scene. And the sheriff tries to get a little cocky about it. And Tommy agrees with the son and says, Hey, it's just protocol. Right. Like we're supposed to get to go. We're we're CSI. Right. Like we go to the crime scene and then we look at the body when we get them back to the morgue and they weren't given that opportunity in this case. Yeah. And the sheriff lets him know that like he can explain like a robbery gone bad or, you know, like an affair or something. What we can't explain is this girl and he needs them to find him a cause of death before the morning. And it's top priority. Right. And Pop says they'll work through the night, and he lets his son know that he didn't have to come back. But he's like, yeah, I did. You know. <laughs> so we move on to that night, and the Tildens just really have to dive into this case, body, however you want to look at it, <laughs> to get some information for the sheriff. And they crank up their tunes, turn on their camera, tell the steps, and start the autopsy. And if you pay attention to the radio in the background, it says, we're going to have a beautiful couple of days ahead of us, right? Oh, and then the music yeah. starts playing. As they start their initial examination, they note that she does not have any external wounds. Her waist does not match her frame and her eyes are gray and her eyes shouldn't be gray unless she'd been dead for a while, in which case she would have rigor mortis, which she does not currently have. 
And Tommy tells Austin to put it all on the board, right? Because they have different chalkboards where they put different data until they find their cause of death. Yeah. Tommy discovers that her ankles and wrists both have shattered joints, and he finds Pete under Jane's nails and in her hair. And he says that Pete's never used it anymore, and you couldn't find it where they're at because they never actually say where they're at. But he says you would have to go up north to get it. That's the only place it would naturally grow, right? Yep. You'd have to get it in a nursery otherwise. Their next discovery about this body is a little bit more gruesome as they realize the tongue was crudely removed. I hadn't expected that. Yeah, what's what's really neat is by the time you get to this, like you were saying earlier with like the cat and the girlfriend, they're not jump scares, but the setting and those all the setups for tension are already here. Yes. Like it's so unsettling and like how awkward is this girl? And this is the first first thing that's like the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> this movie, the Oculus and the Descent are the only movies I can think of that in my adult life kept me on the edge of my seat, like disturbed watching them. Yeah. yeah. Like on a, on a deep level, it's just like all the sums of the whole just make it creepy, even though nothing's really happened yet. Yeah, exactly. But Tommy lets also know that he saw something like this 15 years before. Cause you got to remember, he's been doing this a long time. His dad told him how to do it. Right. Yeah. And he said, in that case, it was human trafficking. They had bound and tied the feet and wrist of the women and cut out their tongues so they couldn't talk, right? So that would explain why the joints were broken, maybe, because they're bound tightly and their tongues were removed by a cartel or whatnot, right? Yeah. And Austin goes to take a picture of the missing tongue and her nose starts to bleed and a fly crawls out of it, right? Once again, not something super scary, but just creepy and unsettling. Yeah. While examining her face, they open her mouth and they also discover that she has a molar missing and they find a long thread of fabric coming out of her throat that they pull out with tweezers and bag, right? And Pops goes and performs a vaginal swab, even though he doesn't see any semen or anything like that on the outside, he says. But he said he found a lot of vaginal trauma. And this matches the theory and ends the external examination. So time for the internal. And we'll get to the trauma a little bit later when we start describing things. Josh, Josh briefly mentioned it earlier, but when you're talking about which yep. interrogations and inquisition and whatnot, it's fucked up. <laughs> but Tommy moves the camera into a different position and prepares to make an incision until they're startled by the radio cutting to a woman screaming in pain. And then it stops and then it goes to the, let the sunshine in song, right? Yep. This is the part where I would have went the fuck home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Austin starts adjusting the tuning knob on the radio and Tommy continues making the first incision. And oddly enough, the body starts to bleed badly, which normally only happens on a fresh corpse, but she should not be that fresh. Right. Yep. And Austin goes to get the rib spreader for his father after he requests it, and he discovers that her blood sample they had taken earlier and put in, in the vials have somehow leaked out of the vials and out of the refrigerator and contaminated all the other evidence in the refrigerator, right? Yeah. Spoiling all their samples. Once inside her body, Tommy discovers that her small waist was not congenital, even though he... he suggested that to his son earlier and he says it's due to her wearing a corset which austin points out went out of style quite some time ago right and i don't think Spanx does that not that bad <laughs> <laughs> they also find that her lungs are very black and damaged like she was burned but there's no exterior damage on her body and you could smoke a carton of cigarettes a day and not have that kind of lung damage which is really odd, and Tommy compares this to finding a bullet in the brain without there being an entry wound anywhere on the body. <laughs> yeah. 
They also start to notice that all of her internal organs have stab marks on them. And they discuss how the outside of the body does not reflect what they're finding on the inside. And Tommy also points out that if you're going to kill someone, you shoot them, you poison them, you drown them. You don't do this to them. This looks like torture, right? Like severe torture. Yeah. Now we're getting somewhere. And somewhere in here, I don't remember if it's before, during, or after this part, they suggest that ritual sacrifice from a cult might have been involved, right? But they hear a sound, and Austin goes to investigate it, while Tommy looks at the crime scene photos, and he does not understand why Jane is so clean in the photos while laying in dirt, as she is clean right there on the table, right? Yep. And we cut between Austin and Tommy, as Austin is startled by the figure of a woman in the mirror behind him and turning around and her not being there and Tommy cutting his hand open on one of Jane's ribs, which is kind of fucked up in its own right. Yeah. But they both hear something in the air vent from different rooms and Austin goes to investigate it and he's startled by something and falls over right as his father comes in to check on him. See what the hell's going on, right? Like you don't want him in there playing grab ass. And (laughs) what they discover is Stanley, the cat's mangled body in the air vent and he's still alive and suffering. And Tommy takes the cat, gets really upset, and snaps its neck to put it out of its misery. And he lets his son know that he wants to be alone, and he takes the body to the crematorium, and he burns it. Yep. But at this point, we move on to stage three of the autopsy, and Austin heads back into the morgue while his dad's cremating the cat, and he sees one of the drawers open in the corner of his eye. And he goes to investigate the drawer, and he's startled by his father. And he just tells his dad he thinks he must have left the door open earlier. When they were messing with the bodies, right? Yeah. And Pops lets Austin know that Stanley was a pain in the ass, but he was their mom's cat and one of the last things he had of hers. And Austin lets him know that he misses his mom too. So we now know for certain that mom is gone, right? Like she's passed away. Yeah. And Austin tells his father that he does not have to put on this act for people. And he's like, I'm not putting on an act. I'm fine. Right? Like dad's just tough ass, right? (laughs) But as they begin stage three of the autopsy, which at the beginning on the camera, he said like, you know, exterior and then interior, and then they go to the organs of stage three, right? Yeah. So they're going to the stomach and the intestinal tract. And as soon as they cut open the stomach, Tommy discovers a flower in Jane's stomach and he grabs it and runs to a botany book he has on the shelf. And he discovers that it's Jimson weed, which is a paralyzing agent. And the book says that it can only be found in the Northeast part of the United States, right? The clues are stacking up. <laughs> right, right. Tommy thinks this <laughs> confirms his theory that she was taken from up north because of the peat, right? Like you got too many things coming to play here. Yep. And we hear the radio say that there's a terrible storm coming and it takes shelter. And Austin looks at his dad and says he wants to leave. But Tommy says they finished something once they started. <laughs> it's kind of odd, though, because I thought the radio said it was going to be a beautiful couple of days. I know, right? Well, uh, fucking weathermen suck, so. Exactly. We've been experiencing that a lot here in our hometown. (laughs) We have. But anyways, as Tommy digs further into the body, I hate saying it that way, but like they're just kind of casually doing it like I'm working on a server or something at work. It's insane. It's work, man. (laughs) Exactly. But they discover a ball of cloth that was swallowed in, in her stomach and the missing molar is wrapped inside of the cloth. And they think the cloth looks kind of like a shroud and really old, and it should have been dissolved by stomach acid by now. And it has symbols and Roman numerals on it. 27 is one of the numbers noted. And Tommy says that the patterns of letters and numbers do not fit the way they are on this cloth. And Austin grabs it and the thread they pulled out of her throat earlier, and he discovers there 
for sure the same fabric. And I guess that's how they figure out she swallowed it. But I don't know how else it would have gotten her stomach, right? Yeah. But they realize they force fed her that thing because she had a thread in her stomach. And this is when they start to think it it's a ritual. I got ahead of myself earlier. Okay. Well, now, see, you and I had seen enough Supernatural that at this point, you know, we had to have both been going, that's hex a hex bag. bag. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I have it written as a hex bag in my notes, even though it's not, just because I liked it. <laughs> nice. But they go down a list of reasons why they think it it was probably a ritual, right? She was bound, her tongue was removed, they poisoned her, they paralyzed her, they stabbed her, and then they burned her. Almost like a human sacrifice. And then the radio is getting like more and more staticky in the background and louder and bringing tension. And they did this really cool job. The DP did with the camera, like just kind of like swapping between the radio and them and zooming in closer and closer each time. It really builds the tension nicely. Yeah. But we hear the radio say that there's a flash flood warning in effect. And while we hear that, Tommy says he doesn't know how you'd kill someone like that with them not even having a nail broken on the outside of their body. And they're once again startled by the radio as Austin thinks he hears it say there's no chance of escape. Right. And then it cuts <laughs> back to the sunshine song. And Austin really wants to leave. And his father keeps cutting the skin back and he asks his son to help him. And they peel her skin back and they discover that there are runes and symbols drawn all over the inside part of her skin that was, you know, touching the muscle tissue. I have some theories about that. I'll get to it at the end, but we get some great cinematography. This might actually be the scene I was thinking of. It's Jane's eyes, the radio, them doing work and the drawers slowly sliding open. And so all the fucking lights explode in the room and glass flies everywhere, leaving everyone in the dark, but you don't just get darkness. You then hear the sound of all the drawers popping all the way open and you hear thuds of meat hitting the ground basically. Right. And it's really fucking freaky when that happens. That was a really nice use of just sound in that scene. It was awesome. Yeah. But Austin cuts on the flashlight app on his phone and he sees his startled father who finally agrees that it's time to leave. Let's get the hell out of here. Oh, wait, wrong clip. Let's get the fuck out of here. (laughs) But at this point, as they scan around with the light, they realize that all the drawers are now empty and they run the fuck out into the hallway and realize that they can't use the elevator to go upstairs without power. And then the generator cuts on to give them a little bit of light and they hear a crash on the cellar doors, right? Yeah. And even with the generator on, they try to use the elevator and they realize the generator is not enough power for the elevator. So they run to the cellar doors where we saw Tommy go smoke earlier and they can't open them because the giant tree he was smoking under earlier had a limb fall on the cellar doors and it's blocking it. So they're fucking trapped. So terrified... For their lives, they run to the office to try to use the phone since they can't get service on the cell phone. Towers are down because of the storm or something. And Tommy calls the sheriff who can't hear him due to the phone breaking up and the call ends. And I didn't mention it earlier, but the reason why they're freaking the fuck out is they can hear a bell jingling randomly yeah, down the hall as things are moving while they're running around trying to get out of this fucking place. And they know the drawers had bodies in them earlier and they're now empty, right? Exactly. And they are now startled by one of said bells that they hear jingling in the hallway. And Austin jumps down the floor to look under the door. And he's startled by a foot stepping down with the bell on the ankle. And he jumps up as the corpse tries to bust the door open. And they have to barricade it. And then suddenly it just stops. Yeah. And it's like violent bashing on the fucking door. And the walls shake it and shit's falling off. Like, it's that point of the movie where I'm like, I'm I'm actually scared. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that'd be fucked up, man. 
<laughs> exactly. But uh, Austin thinks that it's Jane's doing because this all started when she arrived and they started the autopsy. And Tommy just tells him that that's crazy. <laughs> and he starts to notice how bad the wound is on his wrist and he goes to the bathroom to clean it. And while cleaning his wound, Tommy notices that the shower curtain's moving in the corner of his eye. And he slowly turns to approach it. And Austin looks up and he can see the silhouette of a man behind the curtain. And he tells his dad to stop. And his dad yanks the curtain and there's no one there. And then he's yanked back by a mysterious force further into the bathroom. And the door slams shut. And from Tommy's perspective, we can see a corpse with gray eyes on him until Austin kicks the door open. And then there's nothing there. And Tommy has a mark on his belly that's starting to spread. And it's real sore, right? Like at first I thought it was like broken ribs, but it's actually making a shape and spreading out, right? Yeah, because he does get the shit kicked out of him in that bathroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's starting to believe Austin purely because of the gray eyes he saw. He's like, this is Jane. She's attacking me, right? Because of the creepy gray eyes. They sneak down the hallway and go back into the autopsy room to check out the body. And they realized that everything they had taken out of the body, each organ had rapidly decomposed to nothing, basically. And they think it's because her body wasn't there to preserve those organs. They prepare to burn the body in the crematorium, but they can't get the crematorium door open. Nothing they do will open it. So Austin takes a fire axe and tries to chop the now locked hall door open to just get the fuck out of there because he can't even get that door open. And he knocks a shining sized hole in it. <laughs> and he looks out as he hears bare feet walking until a body steps in front of him with the eyes and mouth stitch shut right which we saw that that was the woman that he tried to show his girlfriend earlier yeah right that's another creepy ass shot yes and austin says fuck it and grabs some sort of accelerant they have in the lab and pours it all over the body as his dad pulls out a match and lights it which we already had the exposition that he was a smoker so it makes sense yeah and he chunks the match on her like a badass and her body catches on fire but it doesn't burn yeah and the fire supernaturally spreads to the ceiling and then starts to burn down the walls, down the camera, and all of their evidence they pulled out of her body. Yep. For the most part, there's something that survived. But the fire has burned any proof of any work that they had done. Yeah. And this is where we dive into the third act here. Yay! They hear the elevator activate. So they take off running with their fire axe, and the elevator shuts as they arrive and starts to go up. And the lights start flickering down the hall as they hear the bell jingling and the sound of footsteps. And we can see a corpse stepping towards them. They can't quite see it yet. And I hate waiting for an elevator and it feels like it takes forever. But this <laughs> has got to be like the fucking worst, right? Yes. <laughs> like you can hear the dingling, dingling as the bell's going and you know you're about to die. Yeah. Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> But the world's slowest elevator arrives and they jump in and they can't get the doors to close all the way. And the elevator dies again before they can take it up. And Tommy grabs the axe as the corpse steps in front of the doorway and he nails it right in the chest with the axe. And they dive back in and they can hear a woman wheezing and crying outside. And they look out and they see Emma dying on the ground in a pool of blood from the axe wound, right? Yep. They were tricked into thinking it was a corpse, but it was actually Emma. Austin checks on her body and he gets blood all over his shirt and face as he's like hugging her and crying and, and checking her, her vital signs. And the elevator opens back up and an angry and really confused at this point, Tommy grabs the son and drags him in, right? Like to, to get him out of there because he's like, what the fuck? I just axed a zombie. Like what's, what's his girlfriend <laughs> there? This is fucking weird. Well, he does look a little mortified and at least covers her up. <laughs> yeah. 
But the elevator starts to go up and then it stops and they're stuck in there and they debate over whose fault it was for Emma as Tommy notices the stomach wound is getting worse. And if you think about it, it kind of starts looking like the marks on Jane's skin on the inside. Yep. Like I used to just think it was bruising, but after watching it for the podcast, you can see like the patterns and stuff. So, yeah. And at this point, Tommy explains what happened to Austin's mom, right? She always seemed so happy to him at all times so much that he called her Ray because she was his ray of sunshine. And she hated that because it was so cheesy. But what he didn't know is that she was actually super depressed. And then she died. And everything he says there implies that it was a suicide. Right. And he failed her as a husband and didn't recognize her depression. And she was so perfect on the outside while being so damaged on the inside which reflects Jane's body. Duh, duh, duh. If you think about it. <laughs> yeah. And the director says this is his favorite scene in the movie. Like, is the uh, the dialogue between two of them in the elevator. Okay. But they decide that Jane has been trying to stop them from finding something and that they're dead if they stay in the elevator, so they might as well get out and finish the fucking autopsy so they bust out and head on their way. However, at this point, Jane has kicked up the heat on the crematorium, causing smoke to billow out into the room and the halls. And they slowly walk through the smoke without any vision until Tommy's attacked by something or someone. And Austin gets him up and they run into the autopsy room, barricade the door and locked whatever it was out there. And they can continue the autopsy, right? Because the crematorium's separate from this room. So the smoke's not in there. They cut open her skull, right? Pull the skull cap off, pull out a piece of her brain and examine it. And they discover that her brain is perfectly intact unlike her other organs, and it's still alive. They can see brain cell movement and whatnot, right? Yeah. And they realize they couldn't find the cause of death because something's keeping her alive and she wasn't actually dead, right? It's an interesting way to do it, too, because the brain still functions in a zombie. That's why you shoot him in the head, right? Totally. But Austin starts to look at the shroud, which was not burned for some reason. Everything else is burned except for this. And he starts to fold it over in pieces, and he realizes that the letters in the Roman numerals match up if you fold it properly. And Tommy leans over and realizes that it says Leviticus 20, 27. And he busts out a Bible and he reads that line. And it's different depending on which version of the Bible you read. But the version that he's reading is any man or woman who consults the spirits of the dead shall be put to death. And while Tommy's reading this verse, Austin discovers that the shroud says 1693 on it. Okay. As a year outside of the the Bible verse. Yeah. And Tommy shows the rest of the verse to his son that he didn't say out loud that says this person is a witch. Right. And also has the epiphany, you know, she's from the Northeast because of the peat and because of the Jimson weed and Salem, Massachusetts is in the Northeast and the witch trials happened in 1693. Right. And Tommy lets Austin know that there were no witches in Salem. It was just innocent girls in hysteria and neighbors and children convicting each other. And just a lot of innocent women tortured, right? No witchcraft. Yeah. But basically, Tommy thinks that she was tortured via a ritual that gave her this great power. And because of the ritual that was performed on her and the torture that she had felt, she wants revenge and she wants to torture them, right? Yeah. And Tommy basically thinks that them and the Douglas family that was, we saw murdered at the beginning were in her path, right? And those that survived just get rid of her body and put it as far away as possible. But they have discovered everything now, and they know that she's still suffering and can feel everything that's been done to her tonight and before, right? And Tommy has an epiphany 
as something tries to bash the door open. <laughs> and Austin goes to barricade and hold the door shut as Tommy pleads with Jane. And he says, please do not hurt my son and I'll help you in any way. I won't resist, right? Yep. He then stares into her creepy gray eyes and he begins to go into pain and screaming until his wrists and ankles both snap. And as this happens, we see Jane's wrist and ankle snap back into place and then blood starts to run back into her body as we can hear him having like stab wounds inflicted on him or cuts. You can hear him getting cut and all the incisions start to heal. And then he breathes out a black cloud of smoke while his son's holding them and we see her lungs heal and his eyes start to turn gray as her color starts to come back to her eyes. And he's laying in pain and starts staring at a scalpel on the floor and begs his son saying, please. And Austin takes the scalpel and stabs his father in the heart, putting him out of his misery. Right? Yep. The lights come back on and Austin can hear the sheriff yelling for them saying, there's a tree on the door. We're trying to cut it away. And you can hear chainsaws and shit. Right. And Austin runs to the cellar door past Emma's dead body on the ground. And we can see that he's still in his like clothes covered in blood with blood all over his face. And the sheriff keeps yelling, open up as Austin keeps yanking on the door, crying, saying he can't get it open. And the sheriff just keeps saying, open up, open up. Until he starts breaking into song and saying, open up your heart and let the sun shine in, right? <laughs> and that's when he's like, what the fuck? And the cellar is up higher than the crematorium, right? Like, it's like basically the second story with an old rickety wooden um, railing around it, right? Yeah. And Austin hears a bell jingle down in the crematorium. So he turns around to look. And then when he turns back towards the cellar door, he can see his dad standing there with the gray eyes. And it jump scares him, making him break the wooden railing, fall down, and crack his skull on the ground, killing him. Right? And then we cut to the next morning, where we see the cops actually arrive to find the Tildens dead inside. They say there was no signs of forced entry, just like at the Douglas house. And Sheriff Burke says he's known this family for 20 years. He knows they wouldn't have killed each other or themselves. He doesn't know what the fuck's going on, but he wants that body out of his county and for it to be somebody else's problem. Damn right. And there's a few things I need to point out here. The lights are not busted out. There's no glass on the ground. The only thing burned is the camera, right? The drawers are all closed. They check them. There's bodies in there. Yep. There's not any blood on Austin's clothes or face. He is completely bloodless other than the pool he's laying in. And the police only mention the Tilden's and Jane's body. No mention of Emma. So I think everything that they saw was an illusion of them. It was her, her magic, right? Or her evil presence fucking with them. And the cat wasn't actually suffering. The cat was just playing in the vent, just like earlier in the movie where he's getting the rat. Dad snapped the cat's neck for no reason, yep. right? Like, they thought it was dying, but they were wrong. The bodies never got out of the drawers. They were never walking around. When they think they were being tricked and killed Emma, I don't think Emma was there because her car's not out front, which they clearly showed in an exterior shot earlier when she was there the first time. So her car should be out front when the police are there. True. And he doesn't have blood on his clothes, so he never held her bleeding body on the ground. Yeah. He doesn't have the blood on his face anymore. So I don't think any of that happened. And if you think back to the opening crime scene, I think the Douglases had a contractor in the house working on an expansion, laying concrete or something. And he was digging up the dirt in the basement and he found a body perfectly preserved, buried in the dirt. And what happened to Tommy and Austin happened to the three of them in that house. Yeah. Shit and got they weird. Get out and, Right, right. And they ended up all dying, right? Like via killing themselves and 
and shit by by hallucinations or magical illusions, however you want to place it. Yeah. And and the movie doesn't end there. Sorry, I had to kind of just like jump on a tangent, but we see the police in the corner take out the Tildens and load them into a van and Jane's body. So three bodies. That's all you see there. Just further to me proves that Emma wasn't there. And the vans drive off and we can see the van with Jane in it. And the radio cuts to the sunshine song as we see Jane wiggle her toes and we hear a bell ring credits. That's the end of the movie right there. (laughs) And I'm going to go on some theories that are on the internet as well as my own and see what you think. Okay. But I also wanted to point out, I meant to do this earlier. Tommy did most of the pain on Jane's body, right? And he got everything back to him. Yeah. What is the one thing Austin did to her body? He's the one that cracked her skull open. Yeah. Yeah. How did he die? Ah, touche. Yeah. These theories are in no particular order, but a lot of people, this wasn't the most common theory, but there's a lot of people that, that feel that insanity runs in the family and Austin was actually crazy and hallucinating the whole thing and did this all himself. I think that's dumb and doesn't fit anything that we saw. Yeah, well, because now if there was a better tie-in with mom and mom was crazy, then I could go that route. But they make it a point to talk about how she was depressed and hit it so well. Right, right. And you'd have to be stretching the unreliable narrator quite a bit (laughs) to, to make that a reality, right? Yeah. Others think that she was innocent, like Tommy said, and the ritual was done to her by like inquisitors or whatnot. And that turned her into an immortal witch, which I feel like they were really going that direction because they had Tommy spell that all out for us. But it doesn't really make any sense to me why witch hunters and inquisitors would use magical rituals and runes on a body if they're against it. Exactly. They wouldn't because it was as much as as, as sick and twisted as the torture was historically, it was still based on christian beliefs so they would not have dabbled in the dark arts as part of right of, right of that shit it's odd to say christian beliefs when we get into the uh what do they call the pair spreader or whatever what was it called uh the pair of anguish the pair of anguish which they show used in the reckoning and that was something that was inserted into a woman's vagina and cranked open and spread quite wide and did a lot of damage and uh, that that's what they were getting at, I feel like, when they said she had vaginal trauma on the inside only, right? Yeah, and I do want to, just just real quick, there was a show back on, like, the History Channel or something where they went through, like, the history of torture devices. And that's, yeah. that's why I remember that so well, because they would put it in any orifice. They would put it in people's mouths oh. and crank oh, it okay. until it literally ripped their jaws off. People are fucking twisted, man. <laughs> The Salem witch trials just by themselves is just a terrible atrocity. Oh, yeah. But in the now right now, this brings me to a couple of my theories. Okay. One of mine is that she was actually a very powerful witch and put a ritual or spell on herself uh, where she couldn't die. Right. And that's why they couldn't kill her. Yeah. And they had to kind of fight fire with fire. And they, they used a bit of alchemy, not magic, but they they stuck the Jimson weed in her and paralyzed her. Right. Yeah. And if you think about it, the fucked up shit didn't happen until they took the Jimson weed out of her. True. So that's when she became unparalyzed, right? So I think she might have could have been a witch. And the the weird thing about that theory is the the markings on the inside of the skin. But I don't know how tattooing works for witches doing rituals. It could have been on the outside of her skin, but she's healed the outside of her body at this point. Yeah. Well, see, I have a theory about that, too. 
And I also want to say, I don't even know if her body was so wholesome on the outside when the Douglases discovered her in the basement. It could have been a rotted corpse or a skeleton at that point, but she'd already killed three people and healed herself. Yeah. Because we saw that she heals from, from torturing people. Exactly. Kind of like the, the whole sin eater thing that happens when, when Pops has taken on all, all the pain and she's healing. It makes mm-hmm. me feel like that's not the first time she's done that. And right. And had had he not been put out of his misery, she may have come right. fully back to life. And the tattoos on the inside with the damage on the inside makes me feel like at some point when she was, you know, desecrated and buried, maybe she was tattooed all over. And sometime later, her essence was pulled into another younger body. And that's what we see on right. the outside. But the inside is is still the the witch. That's an interesting theory on it. Yeah. I was just thinking like the tattoos could have gone so deep. It was on the other side of the skin. Right. And, and the outside of it healed, but it could have also been that her body was spread open and they did a ritual on the inside of her skin and it, it's healed shut at this point. There's, there's a couple ways you could go with that. Yeah. Another theory I have is she could have actually been innocent. Like Tommy said, which I really do feel like they were kind of going that way. It just doesn't really fit in with the magical ritual to me. And she was just tortured so badly that she ended up making a deal with the devil or like a crossroads type demon thing. Right. And became like a wraith type thing, yeah. like a, like an evil ghost spirit because of what was done to her. And, and like you said earlier, I don't think this is the first time she was found. I think she's been found a few times over the centuries and has healed a little more each time. Yeah. And at this point, she just needs one more kill and she'll be fully awake, alive with her eyes back the right color. Cause we even saw her organs healing as Tommy was getting tortured. Yeah. And this is one movie that I'm begging. We need more of them, but they need to be prequels and not sequels. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be totally down with answering all these questions. What did lead up to this? (laughs) Right. I want to see Jane in the witch trials. And then I want to see a, or a couple of random incidences where a body was found over the 300 and something years. Yeah. That would be totally badass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would love for that. Please, please make a prequel to the, at least one prequel to this film that starts off with the witch trials and goes into a couple of incidences leading up to where we're at. We don't need to go past this. I don't need to see Toby from Paranormal Activity coming alive and ending the world, right? Yeah. Like, I just want to see what happened beforehand in this case. But all in all, a fantastic fucking movie. I love it with every watch. It's such a simple idea in such a simple setting while being completely original and the witch thing comes out of nowhere while perfectly fitting. And I had no clue that it was a witch film going in. And as we planned this podcast a couple of years ago, I, I wasn't even thinking of this movie. I believe I had seen it by then, but I had other films, including, like I said, Warlock that I would like to cover. And this is the one that stuck out in my head when we decided we're finally going to do witches <laughs> on the next episode. I was like, I want to do the autopsy of Jane Doe. I don't know where else I'd fit it. And this is the first witch film that comes to my mind. And I, I really enjoyed it. Stephen King's right. It's a creepy motherfucking movie, but it was really well made. And I would, I want to see more of it. Yeah. Like I said, for me going in blind, so good. And it starts off so grounded and like, as the odd shit, increases it's still like what the fuck am i watching and then by the time you get to oh shit and then you get to the end and like you said if you really pay attention the the movie didn't happen the way you think it did it's like donnie darko it's like yeah oh shit now i gotta go back and watch it again and just (laughs) just a breath of fresh air and creepy as fuck and i've said many times on this podcast i love 
unreliable narrators if done right. And it was, it was done perfect because they really thought it was happening. It was reliable to them, yeah. which happens in, in other things as well. But when you really pay attention at the end, Emma's car is not out front. There's no broken glass on the ground around Pops's body where he was laying at a pool of glass. The lights over the autopsy table are all fully functional and on. The yeah. drawers are closed with bodies in them. Emma's body's not in the hallway when the camera pans through it to show the sheriff walking through. And Austin doesn't have blood on his clothes and face, which we saw the whole time after he held Emma's dead body. So there were no corpses walking around. The room didn't catch on fire. Nothing broke or exploded. Emma didn't show up. The cat possibly wasn't even suffering. It's just fucking crazy that like her magic was just illusions, which is pretty effective. Yeah. And it's actually going to be used quite a bit in our next film that Josh is going to cover, which is 1996's The Craft. Yeah. Josh's continuing exploration into teenage girl coming of age horror flicks. <laughs> How does this keep happening? I don't know, but it does. I'm not against it, but your movies always end up <laughs> falling into this category. Even if it's like a choice where we only have two movies and I pick one and you end up with that one. Or in this case, you totally picked it yourself. You're, damn right I did. you're covering witches and your our generation. You have to mention the craft. Damn right. And yes, I am legitimately creeped the fuck out enough right now that I had to turn the lights on. <laughs> I was wondering why. Josh turned the lights on as we returned back from our break here, but yeah, I'm the only one in a fucking office park. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, the craft 1996 and uh, we're going to burn through the, the makers and the cast before I get into some backstory here. We've got uh directed by Andrew Fleming, who the only other thing kind of, of note that I could come across was bad dreams. Okay. From 88. And it was written by Andrew Fleming and Peter Filardi. And Peter Filardi wrote Flatliners. Oh, okay. And that's about it as far as of note goes. <laughs> so they work together on this. I'm going to go through a chunk of the cast. Some of them will will come, we'll bring up later. But we've got Robin Tunney as Sarah, who immediately, I go to Empire Records, which has an interesting, yep. two interesting tie-ins with this movie. And later on was on a crap ton of The Mentalist. Feruza Balk as Nancy. Hmm. <laughs> Return to Oz, The Worst Witch, American History X, The Water Boy. That, those, those are the ones I go to. <laughs> I'm so glad he put The Worst Witch in there. I think that was actually her first acting credit. And I think it's ironic. This is the witch episode. And then she ended up playing a witch in the crab. She was a little girl in that film. And I, I used to watch that one as a kid all the time. I remember Tim Curry with his cape singing the song. Right? <laughs> yeah, you were the one who showed me that movie. Great kids movie. They made a TV show out of it a few years ago. It's not as good. <laughs> um, we've got Nev Campbell as Bonnie. Of course, all of Scream and Party of yep. Five. This was her first real movie. And just real quick. Same year as Scream, right? Yep. That's what I was going to say. While we're here, yes, they came out the same year. But based on what they did to make this movie, I think this movie was shot well ahead of Scream. <laughs> yeah, because it has digital effects that were made in 96 that still hold up for the most part. Exactly. Which is pretty fucking impressive because <laughs> George Lucas couldn't do that with the fucking star Wars prequels. But yeah. And, and then scream came out in December, I think. Right. Yeah. Cause this, cause, so. cause this came out in like may, I think uh, we've also got Rachel true as Rochelle 
who I always come back to half-baked, but apparently she was in Embrace of the Vampire as well. Oh, shit, she was. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to go back and look for that. That's a charm tie-in as well right there. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot of charm tie-ins. We'll get to that. <laughs> I saw that online. I, I hope you get to that later so we can talk about it, because I don't completely agree with that. I, I do, and I don't. And, of course, the asshole of the film is Skeet Ulrich as Chris. Scream, Jericho, mm-hmm. now Riverdale. Mm-hmm. Yep. Really interesting how he got into this. And Johnny Depp impersonator. What? Not really. I'm just thinking of the way he looked in the screen. Oh, oh I, wait. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm there. I'm there now. Okay. And I only call him Billy once in this review. I bet I know what scene it is because there's one scene I rewatched it one more time today. I'm like, oh my God, he's Billy. Because other than that, he's fucking annoying in this movie. Yes. So... Some interesting backstory on this film is when when they set out to write it, it was we really want to ground this shit. You know, when when witch stuff is done or witchcraft stuff is done, it's hokey and over the top or hypersexualized. And they wanted to do just like here's some real teen girls discovering some shit. And they were smart enough to actually base everything on legit Wiccan spells. And okay. they hired a consultant. Um, by the name of Pat Devon. I know her first name's Pat, pretty sure her last name's Devon, who's a member of like <laughs> one of the largest covens of witches in in North America at that time. And she was their okay. technical advisor, which was very fucking smart, but makes some stuff that happened during production kind of creepy. Yeah. Now, even on the director's commentary, the director says that Feruza Balk was already a practicing Wiccan. And I read a thing years later where she said, no, I'm going to squash that right now. That's bullshit. Did I know about it? Yes, but I was not practicing it at the time. And that the reason she ended up buying an occult shop was actually while researching this role was what led her into that. That's what I saw in an interview with her is that she was doing research for a role, found the shop, really liked it and just bought it. She thought it was cool. Yeah, exactly. And she seems like that kind of person. (laughs) The the drawn out process of making this movie, just casting the girls took nine months. Jeez. Yeah. Some of the short list, Alicia Silverstone, Scarlett Johansson, and supposedly even Angelina Jolie. The Scarlett Johansson one stands out to me because she's a lot younger than the two of them and would have been a child. Exactly. Like, like, she she would have right? been like 12. <laughs> Okay, so okay. I don't. <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking like roughly like preteen. Um, so I feel like that one's maybe not factual. Yeah, there, there's there's some shit on this film that some of it seems a bit iffy. Robin Tunney, of course, had her Shinado Rebellion hair from Empire Records when she auditioned from for this film because she yep. really fucking shaved her head for that movie, and uh, she's in a wig this entire film, and some of it when it came out, I thought it was her hair. And then now actually paying attention. <laughs> it's a to really it, good wig job. It, yes, to be honest. it yeah. is really good wig job. <laughs> now, Robin Tunney played a huge role in Skeet Ulrich actually getting into this film because oh, really? nobody wanted him, said he was too old to play a convincing teenager. But Robin actually already knew him from working together in New York and really pushed to get him in the movie and help okay. get him in. And I think that's hilarious because right after this, he's in fucking scream. <laughs> the guy who can't and you couldn't replace t- him with anybody. I know. Right. Anyways, interesting thing that I didn't catch on to in, in, until the commentary. The whole movie was shot to be a PG-13 film when they got got it ready to bring it to the MPAA for final rating. They said, oh, it's getting an R. 
And they're like, there's one fuck. It's not sexual. There's no gore. Why are you doing this? Because it's teenagers practicing witchcraft. The movie came out R-rated? Are you shitting me? Not at all. It came out R because of girl, teenage girls practicing witchcraft. Unacceptable. There's nothing about this movie that deserved an R rating. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's fucked up. Yeah. Once again, the MPAA is a bunch of dumbasses. Anyway. They just don't make sense. <laughs> nothing they do makes sense to me. I didn't see this one in theaters, but I remember like wanting to see it and hearing people talking about it and like... I feel like only HBO and Cinemax existed when we were kids, right? There weren't the stars <laughs> and the Showtime. That's why I remember it, but maybe we just didn't have it. I don't know. Yeah. But I just remember like waiting to, I don't remember if it was Friday or Saturday nights, whenever HBO would get the new movie or whatever for the week and just wait until it came out and watch this in my room. <laughs> like, yes. I was like, I got to see this shit. Yeah. But had no clue it was R-rated then. I'm sure I noticed it at the beginning, but I just, I've never thought of it as an R-rated film. Blows my mind. Now, another thing with you talking about, you know, seeing it once it came out on cable, which is around the same time I saw it, was in my 15 minutes of research on this film, there's... (laughs) You can't say that shit, Josh. (laughs) I kept running into this thing about teenage boys didn't see this movie and like, oh no, it was just for girls, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And like, whatever. I saw this as a teenage boy and I thought it was awesome because it's so grounded. I gets crazy towards the end, but it's... Is a totally different take on a witchcraft movie. I think you mentioned this on the first season when we were covering something else. You're like, it was like the crap. Oh, I feel like that happened, <laughs> whether it got cut or not. But either way, that blows my mind because every guy I knew saw this movie and liked yes. it. Yes. I mean, it's a, a great witch film. I don't think we'd have witch movies right now, and Charmed wouldn't be a thing if it wasn't for this. Oh, definitely. Now, before we go any farther, yes, there's the shitty reboot and that's as much as we're going to mention it we'll probably cover it at the end a little bit i'll go into oh, it. that's all on you sir <laughs> so we open with three girls chanting who we're soon going to learn are nancy bonnie and rochelle this shot of them doing their their little chant in the gazebo was a pickup shot after principal photography there's a quick flash of tons of still images that are all pulled from things that happen later on in the film and then boom we get our title card as we fly up into the clouds through the clouds, we get the opening credits and we end up on a plane with Sarah and her family. And they arrive at LAX and they head to their new leaky home. And it's raining <laughs> its ass off outside and inside. And we follow Sarah and the first thing she unpacks is a picture of a lady who doesn't look like her mom. She then heads downstairs and this creepy homeless looking dude opens the front door and offers her a snake. <laughs> He does. It's the uh, old school doomsayer, man. They were paying their respects. And uh, dad runs the guy off only to quickly realize that the snake is still in the house. (laughs) Even the snake gets killed out of frame. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying. So off to school we go. And we quickly see the three girls from the opening being taunted by some dudes. One of them being Breckenmeyer. He's the comic relief of the film. And he really doesn't say anything funny except for a line he says later on that we'll get to. He's such a dick in this he movie. Is. And I don't like it because I, I like liking him. No, he's a, right? he's a turd nugget in this <laughs> shit, man. Yeah. The girls head over to Nancy's locker and Bonnie is clutching a book and lets the others know what she just read. The almanac says today will bring an arrival of something. Yeah, wonderful. I'm getting my rag. A new wholeness and with it a new balance. Earth, air, water, fire. Maybe it's our fourth. I want to point out in this scene, you'll notice that the school has red lockers. And while they're talking, Nancy is holding a noose that's in her locker. 
And I couldn't help yeah. but think of Breakfast Club when I fucking saw this. <laughs> exactly. Same thing I did. And where the fuck do you get a witch's almanac is what I want to know. In 96, you had you had to go to libraries and shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she has. She's like, oh, in the almanac, it says, you know, blah, blah, blah is going to come today, which was not Frieza Box, period, like she thought. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I also want to point out Bonnie in the beginning reminds me of, I can't remember her character's name, in fucking Breakfast Club with the big coat on and like like trying to hide herself and shit. It's Allison, right? Allison. Allie, she yes. played Allison. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very unlike her character in Scream. Yes. Very much. So later on, um, <laughs> in French class, <laughs> Bonnie spots snail trail. Cause that's what fucking Breckenmeyer refers to her as when she makes a fool of him in French class while he's trying to speak French and she can actually speak French. And he even says, uh, I'm sorry, what did that snail trail just say about me? It's pretty derogatory. Do you mean his parlez-vous laid yes. is an actual French? <laughs> it was half French. <laughs> I've been lied to my whole life. <laughs> but what Bonnie notices is that Sarah's got her pencil balancing on the tip, grinding its way into the desk, which wasn't CGI, was really just a hole in the desk with a rod. <laughs> okay. But uh, she's like, holy shit, she's got to be our fourth. And Nancy blows Sarah off when she first tries to join them as a lab partner in a later class. So we're, we're already seeing this, this whole thing of like, oh, she's somebody. She has some powers. These other girls are maybe something. Let's clarify this. <laughs> on to lunch. So at lunch, Chris tries to hit on Sarah. And she's kind of into it, even though he hangs out with the assholes, because she makes it a point that's like, even though you hang out with the assholes, he's like, wait, did you just call me an asshole? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. More importantly, he gives her some details on the three girls sitting across the way. Oh, shit. It's the bitches of Eastwick. What? Whatever you do, stay away from them. Why? No, never mind. What? What? They're witches. He then invites her to watch him at football practice after school, like a total fucking douche canoe. Yeah. But she's the new girl. She doesn't know what else to do. She's kind into Chris. So we see that she went for it and she's sitting there watching through the fence and the girls pop up and they invite her to hang out after school. And it's funny because like Feruza Ball, the way she plays this, even in this one scene, because Sarah's like, okay, you're Bonnie. And, or no, she goes, she points at Bonnie and goes, you're Nancy. And and Nancy holds her hand up and just points at herself and gives her this look like, uh, no, but it doesn't come off as, as overbearing snooty bitch. It just comes off as confident. And that's important. She's, she's the ringleader. That's, that's what we're going to learn in all this. She decides to follow him off to the occult shop for five finger discounts. I never realized because I haven't seen this movie in years that I got five finger discount most likely from this film. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, probably. I mean, I couldn't tell you with a certainty, but I I feel like that's probably the first time I heard that. Nice. But when they see Sarah's wrists, they see, holy shit, this is, you had a legit suicide attempt. You even did it the right way. And uh, I hate to use this line, but, you know, up the street, not across. And what's fucked up going back to Empire Records is she had slit her wrist. But yeah. she had done it the wrong way and admits that it was with a lady bick. <laughs> that yeah. movie. But she's she's been through some shit. So the three girls go and they're stealing shit. 
And they're trying to get Sarah to steal shit. Like, hey, put this in your bag. She's like, no. And she walks away with this book. And she goes to look in the back room. And the shopkeep pops up and stops her. And she immediately looks at her and comments on this ring she's wearing. And she knows that it belonged to her mother. Like, oh, wow. Like, this shit actually knows some shit, maybe. At least that's the look on the face we're getting from Sarah. She also recommends a book to Sarah. <laughs> because Sarah's like, oh, I'm not really into all this stuff. And the shopkeep is like, oh, maybe you're a natural witch. So put two and two together. Mom was a witch. Like, you should really know this already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as they leave, it's now gotten dark outside and Snake Dude pops up again and he says he has a message for Sarah. And it's a really cool scene because he's like, you know, you're going to die. And he's like, <laughs> like chase her down the street with the snake. And like there's a preacher dude on the corner that you can hear that's like, you know, you know, say, oh, those who join with the devil are doomed, blah, 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 blah. Like it's a really intense scene. And Sarah freaks out and goes running across the street and dudes like following her, not paying attention, walking out into the street. And everybody just kind of starts staring at him by everybody. I mean, all the girls. And then all of a sudden he gets run the fuck over by a car. And the girls all run to this park and stop to catch their breath. And they're all exclaiming like, like we made that happen. Were you thinking it too? Yeah, I was thinking it too. And uh, who wasn't thinking that jackass was going to get hit by a car. Though? I know. Right. But, but they made it happen. Come on, keep, keep up with the, keep up with the plot, man. <laughs> and uh, Sarah's still like, y'all are like, like this into this shit. And um, they're like, you know, yeah. Like, well, what do you do? And it's like, uh, well, you know, we, we just kind of, you know, chant and, you know, may, maybe call the corners if we had our fourth. And what about you? And, and Sarah's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll wish for it to rain and a pipe will burst in the house or uh, I'll wish for it to be quiet and go deaf for three days. And Nancy's all like bullshit, whatever. And uh, she's like, you ever tried invoking the spirit of Mano? And that's not a real deity. Um, it's a name they lifted from something French, obviously, but not a real deity <laughs> um, because the technical advisor is like, we're going to do ceremonies invoking a spirit. Let's make sure we don't use an actual spirit. Right, right. And the name is close. To the actual spirit. Yeah. Nancy goes to this thing explaining what Mano is. And like I said, if God and, and uh, the devil were playing football, he'd be the stadium. Like he's bigger than all of this and he's in everything. And Sarah's like, yeah, whatever. And walks off. Cause like, like, oh, you actually believe in, in like this, this power shit. Like, I just think it's something fun I've right. been able to do. It's, it's, it's actually scaring her. So we see instead of staying to hang out with the girls, she goes to hang out with Chris and it's a real brief scene, but he does try to put the moves on her and he goes to kiss her and he's like, Hey, my parents aren't home. And she's like, eh, I'm, I'm not into that. And, uh, nope. <laughs> he's like, you know, acts like he's It's like, you know, are you mad at me? Like, no, no, no. It's like, okay, cool. Like, oh my God, this guy might actually be a nice guy. She turned down sex and he's cool about it. But the next day at school, Sarah learns that Chris is telling everyone that they hooked up and she was a lousy lay. Yeah. And that yeah. Uh, Nancy knows from experience <laughs> that this is the kind of shit he does. She also knows from experience that you can get diseases from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Extra fucked up. So we got to finish setting up the lot in life of the girls. And we're fixing to go through all this pretty quickly. We see that uh, Rochelle has an ongoing feud with racist ass Laura, who's played by yep. uh, the Brady Bunch. Uh, <laughs> she was, she I was always think that. of her from Hey Dude. <gasps> Holy shit. I haven't, uh, I almost have goosebumps, man. I haven't thought of that show for fucking <laughs> ever, man. And uh, she's the girlfriend of Dodgeball. Yes. And she always plays a really nice, innocent girl other than this movie. Yeah, where she's a piece of shit in this movie. That girl. It's Melody something. Tune into the next episode when we say who she is. <laughs> uh, now, back to these girls' lot in life. 
We move on to Bonnie, who's undergoing painful experimental scar treatment, and Sarah having a flashback to her suicide attempt. We also get to see Nancy's lovely Poe White trash home life. So the next day, so so we're to presume, because shit happens real fast setting stuff up in this movie, we're to presume that, that the four are... Well, three of them are already tight, but the fourth is getting drawn in tighter. And after class the next day, they're going to go on a field trip. And they head to the outskirts of town via bus. And uh, the the little girls sit next to them on the bus. That's the filmmaker's daughters. Like, and, okay. and that's the thing, like I saw cited a bunch of like, especially female opinions on this movie is like, holy crap, two men really nailed girls like like high school girls uh, their their point of view in in all this how, how did they do this and why didn't they do it hypersexualized blah 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 and they've said we wanted to make a movie for our daughters like yeah hey, i can see that this, having two daughters myself i can see that yeah this all makes sense now but uh once the bus gets to the stop they get off and nancy gives us the trailer worthy line of dialogue girls watch out for those weirdos <laughs> we are the weirdos mister and it's what's behind you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I always try to pick something fun for my green screen background here. <laughs> so the girls then perform their first ritual with the four elements now properly represented. And the thing that they see, they do right here with the knife. And it's like, it, you, you would be better to rush upon this blade than to enter the circle with fear in your heart. Yada, yada, yada. That's all 100% a real ritual of what you do before okay. coming into the circle. This all done once again with Pat's guidance. So once they're all in the circle, they prick a finger, which is an effect shot. Um, I didn't realize that. And they drip blood into a wine glass and they pass the chalice around and they each cast a spell. And Rochelle wants to not hate people like racist ass bitches like Laura. (laughs) Right. Sarah wants to love herself more and be loved by Chris. Why though? I know, right? Bonnie wants to be beautiful outside as well as in. And Nancy just wants to take in all the power of Mano. <laughs> and when she says it, Sarah's like, that's it. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, that's, that's some selfish shit. If this is the most all powerful thing you could pray to. And they then get surrounded by a fuckload of butterflies. According to the director, this was the most expensive shot in the movie. Every single butterfly is a separate CG element. And they were all composited in individually. Why is the CGI so good in this movie? I know, right? And I should have looked up who did it. It was not ILM. Um, <laughs> but they even said when they started the actual ritual of with the knife before coming into the circle, that butterflies started showing up and that it was like kind of weird. Like, hey, that's the scene we're right. fixing to do. That's not the crazy one, though. We'll get to that. So they've all done their spell. The butterflies show up. They see it as a sign of... That's Mano. He's nature. He's everything. He's answering us. Our spells are going to work. Back at school, we see that Chris is now full blown, lovesick, obedient little lap dog with Sarah. <laughs> and Nancy is immediately not impressed. Like, what the fuck? Sarah's shit's already working. And this is all done through body language and cut eyes from across the, the chapel. Yep. And it, it's so good. And <laughs> that night, Sarah shows the girls light as a feather, stiff as a board. Apparently, they had never heard of it. We had all heard of this shit before this movie. Yeah, we've always tried it and failed it. Yeah, it never works. Doesn't matter how much weed you smoke, it never works. <laughs> but they do it, it works. They lift Rochelle and they have the fucking power. Montage time. <laughs> and we do, man. 
So as this, you know, musically fueled montage kicks in, we see the girls bonding and wearing less and less clothing, except for Bonnie. It ends with Sarah walking down the hall, passing Laura, and she snatches a piece of hair out of, off of her head. And Laura's like, what the hell? And Sarah's like, sorry, thought I saw a bug. And Robin Tunney's smart ass high school girl She's so good in that one line. Just like, I, yeah. I, I buy that shit. It's so, so on the nose from what I remember from school. And if I remember correctly, she was the oldest one as well. Like, I think she was like 30 or close to it. Robin Tunney. Yeah. yeah. I think she was like uh 29. Yeah. And the rest of them were like early twenties or whatever. And, and honestly, she looks younger than the rest of them to me. I know. And that's <laughs> what the director said in the commentary in one shot. He's like, look at her. Look at how smooth her complexion is. She's so beautiful. <laughs> and it's funny, she man. She really is. Because he says some really sweet things in the commentary, and he says some borderline depraved shit in the commentary. <laughs> and, like, he'll take it halfway there and then just start talking about something else. <laughs> <laughs> he starts remembering his daughters. Exactly. So uh, after our montage, we uh, cut to the pool. And, you know, of course, we ended on the hair being plucked. And we cut to the pool and Laura's hair is starting to fall out. And Rochelle sees this and she smirks in satisfaction and does her dive. We then see Bonnie at the doctor and they're like, you know, it's going to take a few treatments. Let's see what we got. Holy shit. You're cured. <laughs> and it really is that fast. <laughs> and uh, of course she comes to school now wearing way less clothing. Cause now she's got body confidence. She can go sleeveless. Yeah. And it's really obvious when you watch it in the film, but I, I did see where the director had specifically stated that the girls started dressing more confident and hotter yeah. as the movie goes, as they get more powerful, just show their confidence. Right. Yep. And uh, you'll even see like uh, Sarah's character throughout the movie put, does her hair better, even though it's a wig and puts on more and more makeup. Of course, nobody's going to top how much makeup Furs Balk has. That's a different kind of scary makeup. Yes. Though. She nailed that. None of it's over the top. That's, that's what's so good about this movie. So uh, seeing all this shit go on, the girls in the group are starting to praise Sarah. And with her in the group, their spells are finally actually working. But Nancy's spells aren't working. And we see her slipping away from the group in dialogue, in shots where she's sitting by herself while the other girls sit together, stuff like that. And Nancy's getting more and more tired of this shit. And we see her go home one night and she's praying at this altar and like it, it's obvious that she's been into this shit longer than anyone else. It's obvious she put the group together. Why isn't her shit working? And after praying at this altar, her stepdad hits on her and because that's who's like, oh, I could almost see through this. What you were talking about earlier. And yeah, and her mom comes comes to her aid and, and you know, she's like, you know, you're, you're not going to talk like that. And it ends up becoming physical between the mom and the stepdad. And Nancy just fucking screams in the kitchen. Fucking shit explodes behind her. And then stepdad fucking drops dead of a heart attack. Right. But it's cool because he's a piece of shit. Piece of shit with a large life insurance policy. (laughs) (laughs) $175,000 because they start screaming it over and over again. (laughs) Right, right. Which... It's a decent amount of money, but it's not like crazy for the way they start spending. I know, right? So with this newfound wealth, mom and daughter go and buy a fucking apartment with all this lavish furniture, a retro jukebox that only plays Connie Francis songs. Who the fuck is Connie Francis? (laughs) We don't get to find out because the girls all say, fuck it, and go into Nancy's room. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, they, there's no way they could get a fucking nice house, fucking penthouse apartment in L.A. and all this furniture and this jukebox, like, even in 96, and man. And she has a car now. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, a fucking nice convertible. There's no way, man. Anyways, so once hidden away in Nancy's room from drunk-ass party mom, Nancy says she's been reading about glamours. And Sarah's like, oh, I bet I could do that. And she's not. She's not a dick about it. She's just saying, I, I bet I could do that. And uh, she's like, watch. She's like, do you see it? And everybody's like, no. And she's like, my eyes are brown. They're usually green. And Nancy, of course, is like, you could do that with contact lenses. And uh, she's like, all right, let's do this. She fucking runs her hands over her head and her hair goes from kind of like brownish, reddish to fucking blonde-ish because it's CG. Looks really good, though. Yeah. yeah. And they they legit just did it with a... Uh, a green wig and, and color keyed it. And, and she shakes her head and her, and her hair goes back to normal. And there's like, Oh, do me, do me. Like, you know, you know, bonding girl shit, but it's obvious. Sarah's still the one with the power. Well, Nancy did just kill a guy, <laughs> but Sarah, Sarah may have been the one that killed the guy, the snake guy earlier. It, it, it lends credence to that, but we're not there yet. So later that night, <laughs> Billy shows up at Sarah's window. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even the scene I was thinking of. Yeah, you're right. And uh, she's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I tried calling you, but you didn't answer your phone. Why did you answer your phone? She's like, it's three o'clock in the morning. He's like, oh, that's why. (laughs) Like, like he's totally like, he's obviously under a spell and he's, he's right. He has no idea what he's doing. And of course, dad pops up and shines a flashlight in his face. And he's like, can I help you? (laughs) And he's like, nobody can help me. And like, it's like, oh my God, like, think about what this is doing to the other people. Yeah. So, uh, next we see the girls head off to shop for more supplies because they're getting ready to officially call the corners. And, uh, while they're there, the shopkeep warns them, like she's seeing the stuff that they're buying. Like y'all are actually getting into some heavy shit and you need to keep in mind, whatever you do is going to come back to you threefold. And Nancy's like, yeah. And picks up this book called invocation of the spirit. Even after the warning from the shopkeeper that's like, are you sure you want that? That's very powerful magic. And she's like, I'm a big girl. And uh, she's like, oh, look, I have money this time. <laughs> and buys the fucking <laughs> book. So they head to the beach and we see each one of them carrying an animal that represents their power or their corner or their sign. It's like they're familiar, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. What stood out to me was Rochelle brought a fish and she's a swimmer. Yeah, because she's water. So we've got water, air, earth, and fire. So we've got Rochelle is water, Bonnie is air, Sarah is earth, and of course Nancy's fire. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) she brought a snake though, right? Well, see, and that's something that on the commentary, they talked about the wrong props being given to Sarah and Nancy because Sarah's carrying a bird and like the whole thing got messed up, but they just went with it. So I don't freaking know, man. I was just thinking like you, you think of a, a snake, you can think of Lucifer, right? Yes. You know, conniving, evil, blah, 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 which is her character, right? Exactly. And the the whole thing with the homeless guy and the snakes is this. He really was the harbinger, the doomsayer that, you know, yeah, should have been paying attention. Avoid the snakes. Exactly. Now, on their way to the beach through conversation, Sarah lets it slip that she's always had terrible nightmares about snakes and bugs. That's going to come back later. They draw out their altar and lay out their stuff on the beach and they call the corners and a storm rolls in that culminates in Nancy 
calling to invoke the power of Mano, and Nancy gets struck by fucking lightning. That's not as crazy as what really happened on set. Now, when they went to film this, the first time they went to film it, Feruzabalt got sick and they just shut it down for the day. They came back. They made sure of how far high tide came, moved in an extra 30 feet to make sure nothing was going to flood the set. As they were actually doing this scene and the crane shot overhead, you will see the water start to rush in on the girls. That's real. That wasn't supposed to happen. The whole thing got ruined by the waves coming in. And when they did the shot of her to be shot, struck by lightning, all the generators went out. So it was like some really fucked up shit. They later found out that Mano is actually really close to the name of an aquatic deity. And they may have actually been stirring up some shit unbeknownst to them. <laughs> I think something happened with fog rolling in as well. I, I think it was a lot of coincidences, but still, <laughs> you're getting close to some shit you don't fuck with. Like, if you don't know what you're doing, don't fuck with it. Right. Like, you never trust the weatherman on if it's going to rain or what the tide's doing that day. Exactly. How do we know that he has the power to actually talk to the spirits to find out what's really going to fucking happen? Weathermen are just making up shit. See, that's the problem. (laughs) So the next morning, the girls all wake up and they're on the beach. They're like, where's Nancy? She's fucking walking on the ocean (laughs) and coming towards them. (gasps) Holy shit. And she starts talking very crazy. Like, like, like he's in me, you know, I'm one with him, blah, 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 yada, 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 like way more crazy than she's been throughout the movie and doing way more crazy eyes than she was doing earlier in the movie. (laughs) Which is saying a lot. (laughs) They go walking around the corner and they see all this fucking beached aquatic life, like all these fucking sharks and shit. She's like, these are my gifts. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? (laughs) And, uh. Sarah tries to warn the group that uh, this shit's all getting out of hand. This has obviously gone too far and the rest of the group won't listen. Later on at school, we kind of have a follow up scene where Rochelle finds Laura crying in the shower and most of her hair is now gone. And Mm -hmm. at the end of that scene, Rochelle looks at herself in the mirror, but her reflection in the mirror, instead of turning towards her, turns away from her. And she doesn't. Ooh, I didn't catch that. Yeah. And the, in the commentary, they talk about how a lot of people don't notice it. And I always thought it was weirder that Rochelle doesn't respond to it, that she looks at herself in the mirror and like, okay. But yeah, it's fucking creepy, man. Okay. It's interesting also because Sarah has already been warning them about everything coming back to them. And they all fucking made fun of her for it. Yeah. Right. And, and Rochelle's the first one to realize maybe she's right. Yep. And this is the, this is the first real warning to Rochelle and it's all about to come tumbling down. So this has been intercut with, you know, Chris has still been pining (laughs) over Sarah with the love spell, but they haven't gone on another date and he finally convinces her and they go out to the point and he immediately tries to fucking rape her and she manages to knee him in the balls and goes running away. Right there, whatever he yells at her when she runs away, he sounds just like Billy Loomis. Yes, and he's got that look on his face and the vein on his forehead. <laughs> That's what I thought you were talking about earlier when you said there's one scene where he's just like Billy and Scream. Oh, no, was, you were talking about the, was the making, climbing in the window. Yeah, 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 the window joke. <laughs> so Sarah goes to the other girls and tells them what happened. And Nancy's like, oh, no, fuck this. He's got to pay. And I heard he was going to be at a party tonight. And she fucking takes off. 
Which is interesting because in the previous scene in the in the convertible, she's getting really pissy about don't try to steal my friends. Don't try to take over my coven. Fuck you. And now she's like, oh, no, no. They hurt one of my own. Yeah. I'm going in. Right? So she has a little bit of mother hen in her still, right? Yes. Now, I glossed over that scene, but since you brought it up, so they're they're driving and they're she's just not letting off the gas and just waiting for each light to change from red to green. It's all working. Yeah. Until Sarah, I think it's Sarah says, you know, one of these times the light's not going to change and the light doesn't change and they almost get hit. And uh, <laughs> I love Feruza Balk there because I think she's smoking a cigarette too. And, and, and like, <laughs> she's like, what? she goes on the rant, you know? And then, then she's like, yeah, actually that was pretty fucking close. <laughs> <or some shit. laughs> yeah. And that's the, that's the part where she's going on the rant to all the girls about the, it's going to come back threefold, right? Yeah. So that's what Rochelle was reflecting on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's funny about the red light bit is it's either the director or the writer pulled that from a college buddy that he was riding with that did that to him and just kept blowing okay. through the lights and they kept changing until finally he ended up in the windshield. <laughs> Ooh. And he decided to put it in the movie. So on to the party. Nancy finds Chris and tries to put the moves on him and he's not down. And she's like, what? Cause I'm not Sarah. And he's like, no, cause I'm not in the mood to have my dick bitten off. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the vibe I get from her. Yes. <laughs> and uh, she uses a glamor to turn herself into Sarah. And this of course puts Chris in the mood. Cause he's so fucking drunk that he doesn't realize somebody just shape shifted in front of him. I know. Right. And this is one of my favorite shots in the movie because she puts her hands up to her face and just runs her hands up her face and over her hair. And Holy shit. Sarah appears on the other side. I didn't know they shot it over and over again of both girls doing the move until they aligned their pupils and their eyes and their hands correctly enough to then morph the two shots together. They actually worked on it and that's why it looks so damn good. It's fucking fantastic. It was probably a hell of a lot cheaper than any of the special effects in star Wars attack of the clones, <laughs> which was top of the line <laughs> special effects. And I can't even fucking watch that movie anymore. You're really hating and on that movie, movie in 96 when I didn't even know they could do CGI like that. <laughs> and it's fantastic. in this movie. You'll hear me shit on CGI a lot, even though I'm the star Wars guy and this movie just fucking nailed it, and it still looks good in 2021. It does, man. It's fucking great. I love that scene, though. With the, It's not even really CGI right there, right? Exactly. It's just- they, It's still they, practical. They did yeah. touch up. Yeah. They, they actually shot that shit till they got it. Because there's even a part where she's waving her hand back, and you can still see part of the black hair with the, yes. the dirty blonde flipping out the back. It's so good, and man. It's so seamless. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Sorry, I just really like that special <laughs> effect shot. It's fucking awesome. So now that drunk, dumbass Chris thinks it's her, they start to almost bone down. They're getting to it. But then the other girls show up at the party because they're scared of what Nancy's going to do because she's out for fucking blood. And uh, Sarah goes and walks into the room. And uh, of course, Nancy immediately turns back into Nancy and Chris sees this shit. And he's like, holy shit. And he gets out of bed. And he's like, you're a witch. And she's like, yeah. So she, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, Chris tells Nancy that she's just jealous 
And this sends Nancy into a fucking rage. And that's when she said, yo, you're, you're worthless. You're nothing. You, you don't exist. And she's, she's fucking sliding across the floor towards him with just the tips of her fucking toes so on the ground. Creepy. That's that other trailer that's shot. The creepiest scenes in the movies are floating on her toes towards him. And he's like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> yeah. And the fucking windows blow open behind him. And he's like, I'm sorry. And then you get the, only Feruza Balk could do this. The fucking well, well, she beats her head's hands on her head earlier before she she turns into Sarah. But she does the perfect, and I hate to say this, you know, the perfect disturbed off kilter psychopath. Yeah, and she starts screaming and bashing the sides of her head. You know, he's sorry, sorry, sorry. And the camera's zooming in and out and shit. And finally, she just bows up on him. Doesn't actually hit him, but he flies right out the window and falls to his death. Two people have now been killed by Nancy. <laughs> Yep. Because I think Sarah killed the snake guy. But anyways, we'll get to that. So uh, at this point, we cut to Sarah all by herself. She's had enough and she's doing a binding spell on a picture of Nancy. With a whole lot of ribbon. Yes. <laughs> she's got a whole rack of it. <laughs> yeah. Why'd she carry every? You're right, man. There's like seven different fucking things of ribbon. She carried the whole thing outside. <laughs> And it still didn't fucking work. Yeah. So 14 days later, when she's done with the bindings, <laughs> she finally gets some sleep. And that night, the fucking, this, this is some hocus pocus shit right here, man. The other yeah, the, Exactly. <laughs> I'm so glad you said it. The other three girls come flying through her bedroom window and they're hovering over her bed and they all start to choke her out. But then she wakes up. It was just a dream. She heads to school and the other three confront her. And because Rochelle and uh, Bonnie are now starting to be a little more snippy and bitchy, kind of like Nancy. And uh, Sarah's like, that's it. I, th I think I'm out of the coven. But if you're going to leave the circle, you might want to think about leaving the school. And maybe the city, too. We're not sure. Or the planet. Before they depart, Nancy warns her that in the old days, if a witch betrayed her coven, they'd kill her. And then she gives her that creepy ass smile and wave on the way out of the bathroom. Like, bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no one else could have played her in this movie. So Sarah has nowhere else to turn and heads to the cult shop. We're almost at the third act here. And she asks the shopkeep for help and they go to the back room. And the shopkeep tells her that she's a very powerful witch, just like her mother. And that the only way to defeat this is to invoke the spirit of Mano. And just as she says this, the whole shop burst into flames, but then quickly goes back to normal. It was just an illusion. Regardless, Sarah freaks out and runs home. This back room scene was a reshoot. They originally shot it with them visiting a blind old witch. <laughs> okay. I am so glad they reshot this because that's one of the many yeah. things that would have felt too on the nose, hokey bullshit. So <laughs> we're go, going to go ahead and say third act here. Because once Sarah gets home, shit begins to hit the fan. Oh, yeah. She gets a call from Nancy saying that her family um, flew home back to San Francisco looking for her and uh, tells her to turn on the news. And the news says that the exact flight that they're on has just crashed with no survivors. Holy shit, the fam's dead. The power goes out and snakes start showing up everywhere. A lot of snakes between 2000 and 3000 real snakes, depending on who you're watching an interview with. Yeah. And a lot of real bugs too, right? Yes. Because then the spiders, the rats, scorpions, roaches, and mealworms show up all because she let it slip. She's always been scared of snakes and bugs. So she freaks out and she runs upstairs to the bathroom and starts to have a fucking nervous breakdown in, in the tub until Nancy pops up. 
If I was as pathetic as you are, I would have killed myself ages ago. You should get on with it. <laughs> it's so fucking funny yet brutal. Of course, she kicks the water on and goes scampering off. <laughs> Which the water thing's really weird and out of place to me, and it makes me think it's one of those things where the actor or actress, in this case, Faruza Balk, probably improv yanking the water on. It wouldn't surprise me because she improv a lot of shit in this film. And it's funny, like the first time they go to the, uh, the occult shop and they're talking about Sarah's slit wrist and Nancy goes, punk rock, and they go walk it off. Yeah. <laughs> director's right that was nancy i still don't know what it means but it looked like it fit so i left it (laughs) (laughs) so uh as she comes out of the shower all the creepy crawlers are gone and sarah makes her way downstairs and finds the three other girls just floating chilling in the living room hocus pocus style like you said earlier and nancy tells her she's like oh you're gonna kill yourself and a suicide note floats to the fucking ground (laughs) and uh nancy comes up and slashes sarah's wrist starts bleeding on the note and shit. Yeah. Cause the girls are chanting this whole time, right? Like to make the note appear. Yes. And Sarah doesn't actually think she slit her wrist at first. Right. Yeah. Cause she's, cause she, she thinks it's a glamour. Yes. She closed her eyes. She goes, it's not real. It's not real. It's not real. And then she looks and I was like, Oh honey, that's real blood. <laughs> what she says is if it's not real, then why are you still bleeding? Yes. yes <laughs> that's the line. <laughs> Yeah. So she runs upstairs and gets a rag for her wrist and she collapses in her bedroom and she's laying there on the floor and finally decides to to fight back. And she's like, you know, hail to the guardian of the watchtower of the north, yada, yada, yada. She starts going into the ritual that they did on the beach to invoke Mano. And she starts saying, by the powers of three, make them see. By the powers of three, make them see. Because meanwhile, Nancy is sending Bonnie and Rochelle upstairs to go fetch her. And on their way up, they see themselves in a mirror. And Rochelle's going bald and Bonnie's going Freddy Krueger. And they're like, oh my God, it really is coming back by three. We're out. And they fucking bail. And Nancy's like, oh, my God, I got to fucking finish this myself. (laughs) And that's just in body language. And uh, she goes upstairs and Sarah's still, you know, doing the ritual and the wounds on her wrist disappear. Somewhere while all this is going on, she looks at the picture of her mom and it comes to life. And and it's doing the whole Harry Potter thing. (laughs) J.K. Rowling stole the moving picture thing from the scene. We know what happened. And I've actually read that in many places. And I agree because I can't think of anything earlier than this that does it like it does in this movie. So she's still doing the chant and like fucking storms rolling in and shit starts flying all over her room and shit. And Nancy is looking around for her upstairs. She doesn't see her anywhere. And she's standing in front of this mirror and Nancy's reflection morphs into Sarah and Sarah fucking reaches out of the mirror and grabs Nancy. And uh, she <laughs> She fucking confronts her and she's like, uh, yeah. So Mano came to me and, uh, he says, you owe him 20 bucks. (laughs) He's not happy about it. And, uh, and she tells Nancy that Mano says that she abused what Mano gave her and now she must pay and fucking roaches start crawling all over, which the hand shots, that's not for bulk. That's a stand in that that's, they get paid to have bugs crawl on them. I didn't know that was a position. Okay. And, uh, the one that she flicks off of her face, they actually did a life cast of her and then green screened that and then composited it with the actual okay. shot of her. It's simple shit that they just did the right way. 
And <laughs> the bugs keep coming and, and Nancy's hands, she's looking at them and her fingers turn into snakes and she falls down on the ground and she gets Medusa hair. That's the weakest CGI shot in the movie for me is the, the snakes coming out of her. And uh, Sarah continues to go ahead and proceed with the binding spell. But do you notice how this, this ceremonial dagger is about to just appear and disappear a few times? Yeah. This whole ending is pieced together with pickup shots and one okay. much later reshoot. And the director's commentary while it's going on, he's like, this knife's about to appear and disappear a bunch. And that's just how it is. Deal with it. <laughs> just like The Last Jedi, one of the worst Star <laughs> Wars films ever made. God, you're on a tear tonight. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, okay? And there's a couple of films that shit on the franchise, and I like to point them out. Gotcha. So Sarah's continuing with the binding spell while Nancy's kind of slumped over in front of her because she tries to apologize. And, and Sarah's just like, I bind you, Nancy. I bind you from doing harm to yourself and harm to others, blah, blah, blah. She's like, but I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. And then all of a sudden she just springs to life, knife in hand, fucking screams, fucking wind flies. And then it cuts to the shot of this hallway. And into frame horizontally through the air, there's Sarah flying <laughs> through the air with Nancy on her, slams her into a wall and they stay there. And Nancy starts pounding the shit out of her chest with both hands because now the knife has disappeared, even though it's in her hand when they fly through the air. <laughs> it's weird. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. hundred percent. I've never noticed it until the fucking commentary pointed it out, man. So she's beating the shit out of her chest. Shit's going haywire everywhere until all of a sudden this dresser comes flying in behind him. Nancy flies out of the way and it crushes Sarah. Allegedly. Yeah, exactly. Because Nancy goes to, you know, finish the job because now she has the knife in her hand again. <laughs> and she's picking through the rubble and she finds Sarah's clothes. And she's like, tricky, tricky, tricky. Then Sarah reappears in her fucking clothes and kicks the shit out of Nancy, flinging her across the room into a mirror that shatters. And we get this fade of broken glass falling through the air with Sarah calmly continuing on with the binding spell. And we fade through the shards of broken glass to Sarah packing a vehicle and Bonnie and Rochelle walking up. And we see that the family is packing up as well. And... The plane crash was only a glamour is, is what Bonnie and Rochelle say. And they also say they don't have their powers anymore. And they kind of smart off as they're walking away that Sarah probably doesn't have any powers either. And Sarah gets this real determined look on her face and the sky goes fucking dark. All these storm clouds come rolling in. All these bolts of lightning start flying everywhere until one of them strikes a nearby tree, causing a branch to fall and nearly hit Bonnie and Rochelle. Be careful. You don't end up like Nancy. <laughs> and we, of course, then see crazy ass committed Nancy strapped to her bed being sedated while she's constantly saying, I'm flying, I'm flying, I'm flying <laughs> and credits. And that's it. And I didn't notice till trying to write the notes for this, that it really feels disjointed when I'm just going through the key points of how it just hops school, school after school here, 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 here. Yeah. But watching the movie, it fucking flows. Even movie mistakes you try to point out or continuity errors don't stick out <laughs> because the movie flows so well together. A couple of things I wanted to say because I tried to be a good boy and uh, not over-research this film, and I barely had time to watch it twice, so <laughs> I had that going for me. But one, her being crazy ties into the craft legacy. We can't forget the the sequel 
that should have been better. Jesse, I bind you from doing harm to yourself as well as others. (laughs) I know, I know, right? And I I wanted a lot from that movie, and I didn't get it, but at least we had Faruza Balk's character brought in, right? Yeah. And show up in the end of the film, and I'm not sure when she got knocked up. I'm assuming it's Chris's baby, one way or the other. Probably. Either the almost getting freaky at the party was actually them getting freaky or one of the the previous instances. Yeah. Um, I did see that the original plan for the film was the three girls had zero magic until Sarah showed up and it was all her magic and it all worked off of her showing up. And they actually shot the film that way initially. And there are scenes that are not in the movie anymore to reflect that. Okay. But if you think about what is present, you can see that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like they didn't have magic till Sarah got there. Cause she's the descendant of a witch and you still have to be a witch. And she, Ended up like enabling them to get power based totally. on a ritual that would not have worked if she was not there. Yep. It all came through her. I think it's really fascinating that most of the magic in this movie was illusions. Yeah. Or glamours as they call it. And that's what ended up happening in, in my film as well. Yeah. And, and, and that's part of what makes it feel so much more grounded. I mean, it is kind of a cop out, but it's so much more grounded this way because, hey, it's all just fake. It's all just making somebody think something. And then that causes, right. you know, B and C to happen. And the hysteria is it yes. was mostly called during the witch trials and whatnot. Right. Yes. And. That's what makes this work so well, because it really is just a teen drama coming of age flick with, you know, a little bit of witchcraft thrown in. But it's still a fun ride. It's everybody's great in the movie. There's there's nobody, no acting in the movie I can shit on. Uh, Well, (laughs) well, not even that. Like, I want to say uh, the Breckin Myers acting is shitty, but that's that's just Breckin Meyer being Breckin Myers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He had a few lines in the movie and he executed them as he was told. Right? Yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, do your part and go home. It's really interesting because if you think about slashers, ghosts, zombies, haunted houses, any way we, we do these subgenres, they're usually almost all horror. And this one, witches have, I felt like, more been used in Disney cartoons and sitcoms and whatnot. Oh, totally. And they have been horror. Yeah. Right. Vampires is probably the close second, yep. but even then they still, even with a show like angel, that's mostly a comic book superhero still has the horror in there, but there's plenty of examples of witch stuff that was made for children and not scary. Unlike the witches movie that came out when we were kids, it was absolutely <laughs> fucking terrifying. And it was meant to be for children. But but it, it's really fascinating. This is the only subgenre I feel like that we could have covered that there are more films that are Disney cartoons or sitcoms or comedies than there are horror flicks. Yes. And you just said shit that made me remember what I said earlier because I almost did it again. Charmed. Oh, yeah. There is a song used in this movie that they ended up using for the opening credits of Charmed. You were fucking correct. As soon as the song kicked in, when I was watching the movie for the first time last week, well, the first time in a while anyway, so I was like, oh, this, this song is so 90s. But you're right. It's the theme song to Charm. Yes. 
And I've seen where lots of people said Charmed was a ripoff from this film. And Robin Tooney's even gone as far to say that she is regularly interviewed and asked about when she was on Charmed. Yes! Right? Because people mix it up. But other than the fact that it's three girls in a coven practicing witchcraft, I really don't see any similarities. No, because it, but it puts the pieces together. All Charmed is is fucking Buffy and the craft put together. <laughs> Pretty much. But it worked. It did work. Uh, now, now, the reboot, uh, but the OG, I liked. E- even even with, with the changes in the OG, I still liked it. But that's it for our witch episodes. You guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode where we cover the Annabelle franchise. I like your dog. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use it more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening.